Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Sunday, September 22nd, 2019, starting at 2.21 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 225th episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro about their new book on traditional astrology. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. Uh, hi, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's uh, yeah, to, to be here. <laughs> it's good to talk to you. I've corresponded with both of you for many years now, for over a decade, but I think this is the first time I've talked to you in person over Zoom. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you both, um, I guess in order to introduce this episode, I should say that you're both actually the authors of one of my favorite introductory books on astrology, where I have a, a list of books that's like my top six beginner astrology books. And your book from 2010 is on that list as one of the best books that I recommend to beginners titled On the Heavenly okay. Spheres, A Treatise on Traditional Astrology. So this was published <laughs> by the AFA in 2010. And when did you originally write this book? Well, 2007. Did, yeah, that's when. Yeah, the, the Portuguese publication came out in 2007. It took us about three years yes. to write it. So. So 2004. 2004, 2005. That's originally it was to be a very small book. Yeah. Okay. And it yeah. Grew and it grew. And, I'm, I'm familiar with that process of how that happens. So, where are you both from? I'm from Lisbon. And I'm from Setubal, which is a few kilometers south of Lisbon, so around the area. Yeah. Okay. Um, and how, how old are both of you, roughly? I'm 55. I'm 45. Okay. And how long have you both been studying astrology and then practicing it? Do you want to start? Ooh. You mean together or uh, individually? Uh, let's oh, start individually and then talk about how you started okay. doing it together. Mm -hmm. So we, I've been doing from since I'm seventeen, so quite some time. Quite some time ago, <laughs> yeah. Quite some time. Okay. Well, I um I began studying astrology uh, seriously in '92. I would say, before that, I um I had read books, all the books I could get my hands into. And I uh, I was aware of astrology, I think, all my life. Not only the sun sign astrology, I was always um, looking for something more serious. So I, I think uh, I never um, discovered astrology. It was always uh, something that I was aware of. Okay. And okay. when did you both um, start getting into traditional astrology? Because you started with modern astrology, I assume, right? Yes. And were you largely mm. reading books that were written in, in Portuguese, or were you written uh, reading books that were written in other languages as well? Oh, both, I would well, both. say. Well, both. We, we had of, well, a lot of stuff were in English at the time. Some were translated into Portuguese, some were not. Mm -hmm. A couple of things in French, Spanish, I think. Um, yep. We began studying traditions sometime around 2002-2003. Yeah. Uh, we slowly began to gain interest in the tradition. We had some books on tradition that were translated into Spanish. Castilian, um, yes. Yeah, 50s, 60s. Uh, so they began the translation process quite early. Um, 
but uh, and we started by that, and then we we took uh, Zoller's course. Uh, yes, um, the beginner's course, uh, and that started to open up, and we decided to move further into astrology, and we got to a point where we simply transitioned <laughs> to traditionally to to to, to traditional astrology. Yeah. Just stop uh, we also thinking <laughs> modern-wise, I think. Yeah, yes, mm. yes, it okay. was. Uh, we also studied with Sue Ward. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, Sue Ward, and she um, she's one of the primary practitioners of Renaissance astrology and like uh, specializes in the work of William Lilly, right? Yes, yes. yes. He's one of the, the best, I think, specialists in, in the practice of William Lilly because she's, she's quite, quite good. Yes, and that was what, uh, like 2001, perhaps? 2002, yeah, yeah. Some, somewhere around that, that time, yeah. Okay, she, and by, by this time, here. you're both already practicing astrology and already teaching the subject, right? Yeah, yes. we we were um, we are together since 99, 1999, mm -hmm. but we were both practicing astrology before. So yeah, we were for a long time. We began with um, contemporary astrology. We call yeah. it contemporary astrology, okay? Because we are both historians, and for us, when we say modern, means like uh, 16th century. So right, yeah, the idea <laughs> of like the, the early modern period versus the modern period. We yeah. call it uh, contemporary, but you call it modern, and mm. it's it's the same. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. We we began with uh, contemporary, and then I would say like uh, 2001 and. I think the shift, the Just, big shift, was in two thousand four when we we renamed the school. The school wasn't called uh, Academy; uh, it had another name. And then when we transitioned to a traditional course and teaching traditional astrology, then we shifted to the Academy of Astrology, uh, and that was the, this, the mark uh, that that made the shift. That was sometime in the beginning of 2004, if I remember correctly. Yes. Okay. And then we decide to go, uh, as we say, as a joke, to be born again traditionalists. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and then I remember by the late 2000s, you both became, you were very active and you had launched a few different um, websites, it seemed like, for traditional astrology, uh, including. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Tradition Journal, which was a journal for predictive traditional astrology that you did four volumes mm -hmm. of, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. It was a very good experiment. <clears throat> and um, if, if we could, we would have uh, continued, but um, simply we had no more time. Yeah. That is the, the, the thing was that it got extremely time consuming. Mm -hmm. um, journals are always very complicated. Then we managing all the collaborations doing all the revisions we still we had a team of people doing that but it it got too 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 much and it's difficult and then at by that time we started again to to engage in our academic studies and the academic studies start consuming a lot of your time so we decided to to stop it while it was in its height uh, yes. so not not sure. to let it uh, yeah, fall too much it's always a very time consuming yeah it's always very time consuming to edit a, a journal uh but it was really good and i think a lot of people would appreciate it now 
10 years later where traditional astrology has become so much more popular. So I'll definitely put some links to it on the description page for this episode. And then eventually you're going to be reposting it on your website in the next few months. So I'll put links to it there when that's available as well, just for listeners yes. who are not familiar with it. One of the good things of the the, the traditional journal was the um, the people who cooperated with us, like you. Mm-hmm. They, they they wrote very good articles, and uh, I think it's it, that was very uh, new then in two thousand and ten. So uh, I think for now it will be very nice for people to read it if they want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still unique. It still stands out even today. I was just looking at it and surprised that it was from two thousand eight and two thousand nine. But the yes. quality of the articles, as well as the design and layout still stands out as being uh, you know, above and beyond what most astrology journals look like. So oh, I'm sure you. people uh, will really enjoy that. So you were publishing that in like 2008, 2009, and then your book came out in 2010, and that was actually yes. translated into English um, by a friend of mine, Maria Mateus, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she also translated the new book. Uh, yeah. Maria and she's- also translated the new book. Uh, actually, she is in the ideal position because she is Portuguese. Mm-hmm. She um, speaks English as her primary language, and she's an astrologer. So, she is the ideal person to translate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, she's a really brilliant astrologer that knows a lot about traditional astrology. And I think she's also yes. a graduate of Kepler College, so she has a great background yes, in the history is. and everything else. So, but after that, you you guys were very active. It especially seemed like in the English speaking astrological community. But then it seemed like you kind of disappeared for several years, or you just weren't as active. And it seems like you decided to, at one point, um, go in a different direction and focus more on academic studies. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. We what motivated that? Point, uh, we decided at one point that uh, we wanted to do, um, let's see, uh, very. Um, primary research. So we wanted to do really uh, serious research and structured research, and we thought that the academic uh, environment would be ideal for that. Elena took history yes, as her, her primary academic uh, area. I came from geology and chemistry, which is completely outside of this, but then I took um, also history, uh, art history, and then we, we followed through to master's degree and now the PhD. So we're trying to do as much as we can for for two, for really good focused research on astrological practices in, in terms of historical historical research. So we can have good sources and if academic evaluated sources and analysis on astrological practices, because I think that's that's very important uh, to organize uh, the the knowledge that we have and try to create new knowledge that might be useful in terms of but, uh, we, understanding astrology. Sorry, we so. also wanted to um, came out uh, from the um, oh, I would call it the opinion level and mm-hmm. uh, go into the research level. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you can imagine, it was not easy to um, enter the academic uh, environment. But we were very, very lucky because we are both, uh, now we are both researchers in uh, history of science. Mm-hmm. And we um, we found some people um, with uh, an open mind. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I think we were very lucky because yeah. we could have been just barred and uh, not not allowed to pursue academically. Mm. But um, instead, we were um, actually very uh, supported. Yeah. So, yeah. There is a, um, a growing community of scholars that is interested in really knowing um, what was the function of astrology historically. And in many periods, we, can, we, we have been focusing on medieval and early modern periods, but uh, can go do that analysis almost in any period of history. Um, and there's this, this interesting, this growing interest in knowing what exactly was the function of astrology in, in history, and in our case, in history of science. How, what was the participation? What yeah. level of, of participation did astrology have in the whole process of build, knowledge building? Um, and that's basically the area where we're working now. Yes, when I began in uh, uh, when I began my MA in mm -hmm. 2010, I think it was difficult to explain what I wanted. Uh, what I did was a very simple thing: was to research what we had in medieval Portugal, astrologically speaking, mm -hmm. and um, try to analyze what they have. And um, my uh, supervisor then, uh, she was a bit. Um, uh, hesitant, I would say. She was a bit worried about this, but um, as soon as she saw the draft of my work, she understood what I wanted. And she's an historian and she comes from a different area, but she understood what I want. And um, she said, look, uh, this is great. Let's do it. And also I had a second supervisor. I think you know him. He's um, a German uh, scholar, Kokur von Stuckrad. You know Koko von Schuckert? He was uh, my yeah, second supervisor. Yeah, he wrote supervisor. One, some major scholarship on the history of astrology. And yeah, I'm familiar with his work. He was my second supervisor, so I was really lucky to, to have these two people. One Portuguese supervisor, very good, and also Koku. So uh, my MA went well, and then I decided to move on, on to uh, a PhD, and I applied for a, a grant. And again, I was very lucky because I got Professor Charles Burnett as a supervisor, which Who's is one of the really leading. He, Burnett's one of the leading scholars on medieval astrology. He's actually the leading scholar on medieval astrology probably in the world today, and yeah. just recently published a huge translation and critical edition of the work of Abu Mashar. Which, is, which yeah. we have it here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I'm I'm reading through right now and finding some really amazing stuff actually. So that's that's really yes. exciting. And also, not only a good scholar, but an exceptionally good supervisor. So I was very mm -hmm. lucky. Okay. So, yeah, and I mean, the, that's really. He's also uh, uh, Louis' supervisor. He's my co supervisor. Uh, also, okay. So, and you know. so, both of that's happening then. Are you both doing, you did your degrees at the Warburg Institute? Yes. Uh, and so, what is the War, Warburg Institute for those not familiar with it? Well, the Warburg Institute is a, a part of the University of London. Okay. And um it is like the um it was also part of the um work of Abby Warburg, a German scholar and a researcher who uh moved into London in the or before or 30s, during I the think. Second World War. After before the Second World War. Before, I think, yes. And he, he researched um everything that's uh, related to symbolism, magic, esotericism astrology, 
mainly through the um, history of art, art history, mm-hmm. but also uh, history. I, I'm a student of history and uh, I'm an historian, so I think it was the ideal place for me. And uh, so I, um, when I got there, I, I thought like, uh, well, I'm very lucky to be here because um, it's like, first of all, we have people from all different countries, not only English people, because that's in London, but uh, from different countries. And the um, the environment, the, the way that we relate to supervisors or to other students, it's really, really good. So uh, we feel at home all the time, and we have access to an amazing library. And I yeah. mean amazing library. That's one of the things mm-hmm. that... I really miss here in Lisbon. You have shelves and corridors of shelves only dealing with history of astrology. Yes. So every critical edition, every little obscure article. article that you can imagine, it's probably there. So it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I visited so once in 2000, 2008, and I'm pretty sure that has to be the best library just in the world for astrology books and especially for traditional and older astrology books and critical editions and things of that nature. Mm, yes. 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 And the way it is organized, you can actually you don't need to ask the book to a librarian. Mm-hmm. If you are a student of the institute, you can just go there to the shelf and see and they are organized by topic, not in alphabetic order. So you go there to pick one book and you end up with 500 books because they are all related. So um, it is organized in a way that right. you can you can um, make the best of the library, mm-hmm. make the best of your study because of this. So it's, it's really amazing. If you have the opportunity to go there, I, I would advise you to go because it's an amazing place. And you just finished your so, or actually, before we get to your PhD dissertations, um, so that's really important because it seemed like for most of the past century, there were in the early part of the century suddenly there was academic interest in the history of astrology, and there was a growing but relatively small group of academics who were doing important work, making critical editions, and doing projects like the CCAG to catalog all of the surviving Greek manuscripts on astrology. Mm-hmm. But we just. Uh, you mean the work of David Just? No, no, the the earlier ones. The oh yes, yeah. more like Franz Cumont and some of those people in like the oh, early twentieth yes, yeah. century, where there was growing academic interest in the history of astrology, and then eventually later in the century, astrologers started getting interested in traditional astrology, but they were kind of like separate groups for a long time that didn't intersect. But more recently, over the past two decades, there have been. Individual astrologers who have been making an effort to to go back to school and to get advanced degrees, especially in the history of astrology or the history of science, in order to sort of uh, merge those two worlds or blend uh, merge that gap between the two groups. Mm-hmm. Yes, for instance, in the um, uh, Warburg Institute, we have Dorian Greenbaum. Mm-hmm. Dorian was one of the first, I think. And I always, um, I always uh, say that she, um, she broke the ice for us, you know, because she, she was one of the first uh, scholars to openly uh, study astrology in this at this level. So I, I think you interviewed Dorian some time ago. 
Yeah, she appeared on the podcast just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so she was another person who, like you, she was an astrologer. And I think she had like a bachelor's or a master's degree in Egyptology, but then became an astrologer. And she did a translation of Paulus Alexandrinus in, I think, 2001. Um, but then eventually in the early 2000s, decided to go back to school and get her PhD. And she went to the Warburg Institute, where I think Charles Burnett was also her advisor. Yes. And she ended up doing a dissertation on uh, the daimon in Hellenistic astrology. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she was really inspiring to to you and seeing what she was able to do as part of maybe what motivated you guys to make that such a big move yourselves? Yes, not only she was inspiring, but she was actively uh, supportive because we know her personally mm-hmm. and she was very, very supportive of both of us. Yeah, yeah. And it is important that we have um, the study of, of, of history and with astrology because in Speaking from an astrological perspective, it's like you were saying, there were many groups, and there still are to a certain degree, because you have pockets, you can say, let's say, pockets of people who studied specific works, um, specific authors, and are sort of less orbiting uh, those authors and those lines of approach to astrology. While um, we, in our experience, although, of course, you always go to a certain technique or practice or alter that you prefer that's that's not almost natural but um one thing that lacks is to have a complete view of astrology a view of the tradition so so that we can see how it evolves how it develops and we can extract the basic concept the basic concepts yeah. instead of having a basket full of contradictions because people sometimes discuss a lot of the contradictions in astrology and they forget to see what everyone talks about and it's common to everyone and it's that fine line where you have the the, the, the column of astrology with, with the, the consistent uh, tradition, the consistent doctrine of astrology throughout times, yeah. that's where we should focus, not so much in the little differences. Sure. And it seems like this study of history and culture kind of go in ha- hand in hand with the revival of traditional astrology, because in, in mm-hmm. modern or contemporary astrology, you just study the techniques and you don't really need a lot of contextualization because it's written in the same period that we're living in now. So there's just Mm -hmm. things you can take for granted that everybody knows or accepts. But as soon as you start going back into history, you have to understand like the culture and the time period and everything else. And and so it seems like that's part of what you felt like you needed to specialize in more or wanted to become more authorities to talk about is just that that process of of understanding the history and the context in which the techniques emerged or were practiced. Mm Yeah, mm-hmm. I think what we uh, value is um, what we call astrological culture, uh, because uh, contemporary people and most contemporary people—I don't know what they do. I don't know all of them, but most contemporary people would um, just focus, as you said, in the practice, and uh, they don't worry about. Um, uh, the way the technique evolved or the way the technique was uh, created. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that um, that um, o- opens the um, space for all sorts of opinions. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how the technique is 
uh, generated if you don't know the rationale of a technique. You just, you might have your own opinion or you say, oh, because in my own horoscope it works. That's the main, the main sure. argument. It works for me. Right. And um, so this would generate all sorts of um, what we might call personal astrology. For me, it works. Mm -hmm. So if you know where the technique comes from, if you have this um, context, all the context, if you understand the idea, you will be able to um, criticize in the good sense of the word. You will be able to criticize and say this, I think it makes sense. This, I don't think it makes sense mm -hmm. because it's not rooted in the tradition. That is the, the main thing. And also because, um, probably because I'm an historian, but I think it's very important for any kind of practice to understand how it developed. Otherwise, you have no root. You just, you just live Same in, in without, the superficial no. level. Say things without any substance. Uh, yes. Well, we're living in a world where people say things without any substance yeah. anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sure. Seems to be a but it, thread it right seems now. like that's what's drawn a lot of people to traditional astrology over the past decade is mm -hmm. um, wanting to go past, oftentimes, like doing modern astrology, but hitting a wall in terms of your understanding of the subject and realizing that if you wanted to go deeper into it and wanted to be able to actually synthesize charts or know. The reason why you're saying certain things that at a certain point mm -hmm. you have to go back into the tradition in order to figure some of those things out. Yes, yes. I think what happened, if and I'm talking a bit historically here also, but uh, in the 20th century we had a move, a slow move um, from the tradition and a natural escape from the tradition because of the, the whole cultural uh, movement of the 20th century, and we got to a point where things get to a level of abstraction which had no connection to reality. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of astrological practices nowadays that don't have any connection to reality and sometimes not any connection to astrology itself. Yeah. So <laughs> most of the time we see people say they're astrologers and they have studied astrology, but they explain astrology through a, a, a several other systems, esoteric, psychological, several, um, spiritual or something else, or scientifically even, and they don't explain astrology by itself. And any form of knowledge, such as astrology, must be able to explain itself. It must have an internal rule which we can fall upon when we have a doubt. Or else sure. we, we can't, it's like mathematics comparing, it's an easy comparison to do. If you have a doubt, you, you go for the mathematical rule, you go for the geometrical rule, that will give you the answer if you're progressing correctly or you're not. And astrology lacked that for a long time. Now it's recovering that. And we st we're starting to see a nucleus, a hard core nucleus of astrology, of the, of the doctrine that's coming out again, which was completely lost until we started to have translations. Um, and we're here speaking in English, so in the English-speaking community, you, there weren't many translations of the old texts until two decades ago, three mm -hmm. decades ago. So it, they were known, and now you have it, and now you had already enough time for that information to mature and to result in 
in a community, let's say, of people that are practicing traditional astrology and have a common language already grown up, which is not William Lilly, it's not um, Hellenistic, it's not medieval. There's already a nucleus which is common to any tradition in astrology, and that's that's where things need to be worked upon. It's to understand exactly what the nucleus is composed of, although we can have, of course, certain techniques that exist in different cultures, in different epochs, it's, that's natural. But still, there is a common ground to hold yes. this, the essential dignities, um, the, the, the qualities of the planets, all of that is the nucleus. And we can see it in any, any astrology book, any astrology primer will have to have those principles, which are absolutely lacking in most of the things that were written in the 20th century. You don't have a common ground. You don't have an explanation for the meanings of the planets. You don't have um, an explanation for the aspects. Or you have an explanation that is outside astrology, yeah, yes. like psychology, for instance. I call it numerology, symbology, mythology. For example, one of my main glitches with, with the, the rationale of astrology you now sometimes you now in present days is mythology. You fall back into mythology to justify why a planet works in a certain way. But mm -hmm. we're forgetting that mythology was forged from the, the observation of the planets. So we're doing things incorrectly. Backwards. Yeah, it's not uh, the mythological god that gives the planet a certain quality that the quality of that god was derived from the observation of the planet's uh, actions uh, in nature. So uh, we're doing it incorrectly. You, you cannot do it, the process, uh, inversely. So it's, it gets complicated. Um, right. And, and there was also the presumption that that's the way it's always been done. And that assumption was projected back into the tradition that mythology has always been the primary interpretive principle for understanding celestial mm -hmm. bodies, and therefore it's getting projected forward into the discovery of new ones. So that's the primary oh, yes. way that they're approaching <laughs> like new bodies is by thinking about the name and the mythology or other things associated with it instead of observing mm -hmm. it astrologically and seeing what it correlates with in practice. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's been the problem with the new planets, the modern planets, since at their beginning. It's, we didn't have and you, for, for once, we don't have any rules for new celestial bodies. The corpus of astrology has very little. There are some, but and that is something that has to be uh, studied uh, more Seriously, carefully. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you don't have a way, a method, let's say, of interpreting new celestial bodies because for millennia, the, the celestial the skies were supposed to be immutable and perfect, so you wouldn't have change in the heavens. Um, when you got to the early modern period, and I'm talking about this because it's exactly the, the area where I'm, where I'm studying currently, uh, you have a lot of changes, you have the supernovas, you have a lot of things popping up that need to be explained, and there's no techniques to explain them. But you still see the astrologers trying to somehow incorporate all of that. Unfortunately, when you get to the new planets, as you very well know, astrology was already almost dead in terms of tradition. So we didn't have a proper background. digestion, yeah, the proper background, the proper digestion of what the new planets could mean in terms of astrology. So, and we still don't. That this this is my my point of view. People might think differently, but we do still don't. We still assume a lot of things. 
what sort of characteristics we, we project into the, the, the new planets. And there's another thing that it's, uh, it's supposed, it's assumed by, by, by mythology, and there are other yeah. other, other points. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. No, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and there's another thing that um, uh, astrology is uh, for us, at least, the way that uh, man, humanity, looks at the universe. That's why it's geocentric. It's not because we don't know that the the sun is in the center. It's because we look at the universe from this window, from Earth. And also, we look at the universe with our own instruments. So when we look at there, outside, we see um, Jupiter, Saturn, and then we don't see Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So um, if we think of astrology as the way humanity looks at the universe, the way that we um, absorb the universe, we wouldn't need the new planets. I know this. I know lots of people don't agree, and I'm not trying to push this idea. But this is our our view. So, yes, if you um, find yourself without any instrumentation, yeah, you don't have a table, you don't have anything else. You still can you still look can at the sky, s- yes. and try to build up a, a, a basic. Chart. Actually, it's something that we do with our students. Yeah, we, we take them outside and say, outside, look, okay. um, imagine that the baby is just born. Uh, what is the chart? And they are like, uh, can I look at my iPhone? No, you cannot. <laughs> just right. look at the universe. And uh, they begin looking at the universe and they think, and they, they end up calculating the ascendant. And the planets, because they, they can see some of them or they can they, they remember where they are and they can calculate a chart without any instrument. That is yeah. one of the things. Of course, it's not an exact chart. It's a, just a calculation. Of course. And we, you can do that with the, the new planets. So, so that places a problem. This is a, a nuclear problem into astrology. How do you incorporate such a thing? And I think it hasn't been thought out completely. Um, because people are too stuck to the practice. And for us, it was difficult when we transitioned to to, yeah. to, 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 to tradition to leave the new planets alone. And, we have and to divorce the new planets. Exactly. There's a whole process <laughs> of mourning there. But um, <laughs> what happened is as we moved into a traditional interpretation, we still had new planets there in the chart and suddenly we weren't using them and we look at it more. We talk and we say, well, let's take them out and, yeah. and see what happens. And Let them go. <laughs> they've never returned since. Uh, <laughs> but but that's still, but that doesn't mean that they don't need to be integrated into astrology. But that needs to be done astrologically, and that takes yes. time. I think that will take centuries. And also, sure. when we when we look at uh, contemporary astrology or modern astrology. Um, most of the uh, readings begin with the new planet. And if right. if we are really honest, some of the uh, modern uh, astrologers, they don't really know how, how to interpret without the new planet. They always focus on the new planet. If you take them the new planet, it's like if you take them a leg and then you want them to walk. They, they cannot. So... Um, even we, when we have uh, students who have already studied contemporary astrology, we say, uh, like, just, okay, th- it is difficult to learn something the second time because you already know astrology in a certain way. So now you have to uh, take all that 
these things that you know, just put them in a mental box and just let them be there. And then you have to begin. And they always think like, oh, I have to go back again and study what I already know. But um, they found out very soon that it's not a repetition. It's not what they know. It's a completely starting, different way of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. It's starting from the beginning. And um, and then I say, if you want to incorporate the new planets, that is fine. But first, learn astrology. First, you learn astrology. You learn the idea of astrology, the symmetry of the astrological system. You learn the way it works. And then if you need the new planets, that's fine. Just use them. And uh, when they really learn astrology, they don't need the new planets. And they have to to make this kind of uh, mourning for the new planets. And that's fine. We have nothing against that. And we would love no. to. Actually, we would love to have people studying the new planets with an, a really serious astrological yes. basis. That would be lovely. Not just because it works in their own charts, not just because they read in some magazine, but really a very scientific study of the new planets. Within the astrological community. That without was... the psychology, without yeah. Jung, without all those things, you know, astrologically yeah. speaking. For that to work, I think we would need to first clean up all that we assume that the planets do, and then arrange a method that could study them yeah. with well, astrological like rules. One of the things you've recovered, one of the things that's clear is that in traditional astrology, the perspective of the observer matters and is a major component. And that's something that was a huge part of traditional astrology in a number of different techniques, but it kind of fell out of modern astrology as it assumed almost like a universal sort of view that the perspective of the observer isn't relevant or, or wasn't mm -hmm. paid attention to mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. But yes. that almost seems like a and philosophical also, or conceptual premise that's important. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there are two main ideas. One is that um, astrology is the, um, the language of someone, some human, humanity looking at the universe. So yes. And the, the other is that astrology reflects nature. So nature, it would be the first guide. If it doesn't make sense, if it's not natural, we have to think about it. We have to rethink about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, this would bring us to another thing that is one of the uh, things that Louise has uh, worked a lot, which is the um, the way of teaching astrology. I think you, you might. Because yeah. we uh, learn astrology, contemporary astrology, in a certain way, and we teach traditional astrology in a completely different way. Yeah, and um, I've been trying to research some how, how astrology is taught, which is something we still don't know today. Mm. Um, so if we go back in time, how do they teach astrology? What's, what's an astrological curriculum for a university mm. in the Middle Ages or in the early modern period? What do they do? Um, that's, that answer hasn't been, been, been reached yet. But what you can see is that there is an important integration of astrology, not only with itself, but with the, the philosophical system where things are explained. And that's quite important. Of course, philosophical systems as Aristotelianism have fallen out uh, for centuries, but we still use the premise, the basic premises of Aristotle's system to explain the astrological conditions. We, we, we still do that uh, today. Um, because 
their way their way of interpreting the nature uh, and the universe it's not that they are updated of course we know that matter is not constituted by the four elements but still <laughs> the four elements represent certain characteristics which we can use to describe certain natural events effects so that's still valid uh, to a certain point we might update it but uh, it's still there um and um so th this is what we begin teaching yeah, astrology by the elements yeah, well the the book uh, uh which you know that that was an attempt for us to to write something which was if someone has never heard about astrology Mm -hmm. How would you explain it to it? Without and, right. anything else. And you know? in terms of structure, I may say we started with the aspects. And the first chapter to pop up, I think, was the, the, the more complex uh, interactions of the aspects, yeah. you know, obsession and, and, uh, and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And the last bit we, 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 we wrote was exactly the introduction and the first basis how do you start to explain astrology and that's nature really that needs to be our guide um, and all the natural principles sometimes people go for the mysticism and for the the, the magical part and, and and the spiritual part and forget that all of that comes from the natural cycles that we experience in this earth and this daily life every time and that's that's the key for understanding because, astrology because people think mm. uh, speak of astrology or magic as if they are separate things from life but they are actually part yeah. of life there's one and one 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 question that we always ask our students which is why do we have 12 signs of the zodiac <laughs> well there are a lot of people practicing astrology that don't know this without getting into a very numerological or symbolic nature, which is correct, of course, and you have a symbolism there, but you have 12 because you have, in the course of a year, so a cycle of seasons, you would have 12 lunations, so 12 stations of the moon and the sun, which will give you a basic division of 12. And it's because you have that basic division of 12 in the, in the lunar cycle that 12 becomes endowed with a certain meaning of completion and of cycle, and then you have the two and the seven, and the seven comes from the planets, and, and all the symbolism starts to derive from the, the structure of the universe as itself, and astrology is the basis there. And this is something people sometimes don't understand, which is astrology is the mother of all sciences in a certain yeah. aspect, <laughs> and here we would say astronomy slash astrology, because it's, we're talking about the same kind of knowledge at this period, which is you're seeing everything moving around you and you're trying to interpret it and you're trying to extract meaning from that. And that's the basic of astrology, numerology, mysticism, and all of that comes from the experience that we as human beings have of nature. So yeah. that, that's, that's quite important. And that, uh, that takes us to another thing, that astrology was for us, we think, and this is something that we talk uh, a, lo a lot of times, Uh, astrology was not invented. I mean, mm. it, it, there was not a moment where people were looking at uh, the sky and saying, I'm going, I'm going to call this Capricorn and I'm going to call that something. Um, astrology um, was probably a part of human development. And I mean, mm. like, since the beginning, because you can see that the concept of correlation 
the correlation between the movement of the planets and the cycles of the moon and all the, all the things and the correlation of these things with the events on Earth, um, the concept, this concept, which is actually the the basis of astrology, um, it it is always present in humanity, and I would say it's even I would dare to say that it's also present in some animals like uh, the birds that um, use the constellations to to fly to other places and the um, all the all the animal all the animals that regulate their cycles by the moon so in a very very basic system we all instinctive i would say instinctive, on an instinctive level astrology uh, is there uh, it is biologically there in a very engraved, simple way yeah. yes but, and but then as historians, as you, you still recognize that some techniques were introduced at different stages or that there was some variation oh, of course. in the tradition. Yes, of course, of course. And mm. uh, I'm not talking about um, uh, horoscopic astrology or anything like that, of course. Okay. I'm talking about the basic correlation between planetary movements and events on Earth <laughs> very and a very, very basic level. So as humanity developed, we began to make it more complex. Mm-hmm. Until we get to the completely um, intellectual understanding of astrology that I- involves techniques and all sorts of things. Of course, you're absolutely right. But uh, I was talking in a very, very basic, very sure. primary that level. That makes sense. Yeah. And it ties back level. into what Luis was saying about that there is an astronomical basis for the zodiac yes. and that a lot of the traditional yeah. techniques go back to some sort of astronomical basis that is not purely. It's not just psychological, it's not just purely numerological or something like that, but there's often yes. an astronomical reason that the rule is based on in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the structure, you, you, for example, measuring of cycles, you have it, it's astronomical, it's basically astronomical. Most of the meanings of the planets, uh, traditionally speaking, come from their cycles. So there are, there are appearances and Probably a lot of those older systems, which we don't really have a history for, for example, the essential dignities, as we've seen from various academic studies, derive from that kind of cycle. The terms, for example, being the most obscure origin of them all, I would suppose (laughs) they come from some sort of astrological cycle that is being observed and computed into that tables for some reason that we, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably changed a long time before we have a written proof, uh, a, a testimony of that change. Uh, but it's still there. So um, all of that, it's 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 very embedded in the core of astrology, and we need to understand that. And sometimes people say, "Oh, but that takes the mystic out of things," and it doesn't. It's impossible to take the mystic out of you things. You can't. Uh, there's still the <laughs> spiritual level of things. That's still the spiritual living, but that's. Being, if you want to talk, being one with the universe means to understand how the universe moves around us and, and surrounds us. And, and this, I think astrology is quite a, a doorway for that and has been, uh, historically speaking, a, door, a large doorway for, for yeah. mystical interpretation and, and, and mystical experience. And when people say that takes mystic out of things, it's like a... Keeping the ignorance is better, and it isn't, because the more you understand, intellectually or in any other way, the more you understand, mm-hmm. the more wonderful things are. Yeah. There's the wonder, and every time you get a new level of understanding, 
be it intellectual or any other kind, you become more aware of the wonder of life and mm-hmm. of the wonder of astrology because it's it's really yeah. something that um, has been with us Mm-hmm. Since, uh, since since the beginning, since ever, yeah, yeah, and th- that's quite important. And I think people lost that connection to to astrology being derived from the observation. And we see that, for example, I've seen that uh, in recent years, where people sometimes have no idea that you can actually. And I've seen this a couple of times, and I will say this kind of just a joke, but it's true, unfortunately, which is people who practice astrology and didn't know that the planets were visible in the sky. Sure. And this unfortunately occurs, and this means that you have a cleavage, uh, a complete cut between what the reality of astrology and its practice, which is frightening. Right, and it's today, just a completely com- abstract thing because people are just looking at a computer screen or mm-hmm. even the ephemeris, although the ephemeris does a better job of showing the, the movements, yeah. it's still abstracted to a certain extent yes yeah 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 they, they have no idea that astrology reflects nature mm-hmm. and um and so they we have we had people who who said uh but we can see the planets can we see the planet if we go outside i said well yes and i'm uh, talking about <laughs> astrologers practicing astrology exactly. So it's kind of a joke. It's a joke, but it's fortunately a very serious and and, and worrying joke. Sure. And I I think tradition at some level stops this, or at least blocks it because you need to understand things. But it's still um, a problem. For example, I was thinking another problem we have is the mathematic, the lack of mathematical knowledge. That a lot of the of the astrologers today have, mm-hmm. uh, because computers do everything, and thank God they exist. Or else we would have we would spend uh, weeks calculating charts because because before we can have anything done. But um, for example, primary directions have been strangely out of predictive work for a number of years, right. partially because people still get them confused a lot, and there's a lot of opinions on systems and what to call what but um but basically because you don't have a good program that calculates mm-hmm. them or okay. and, and you know you don't have people who have a correct understanding of what they're looking at because you simply can't do a list for example here we detected a lot of the time people coming from contemporary astrology who had the basic teaching would interpret the direction um like they would interpret a transit so if you have Saturn conjuncting Venus uh, in the transit way, you would see Saturn affecting what Venus represents in the chart. But people forget that with directions, things work otherwise. So you, if Saturn as your significator is moving towards a conjunction of Venus, it will be Venus as the, the, the promiser of the chart that will affect what Saturn represents in the chart. Let's say it's the ruler of the ascendant. So, and this kind of, of, of rationale, it's lacking. So people really can't use directions because they don't understand them. Mm-hmm. And for example, this goes on to other directions which are used currently, like for example, secondary progressions, which we, we stopped using a long time ago. But if we go and see where they come from, secondary progressions have the same rationale as primary directions. 
or any kind of direction. And they were applied only for the luminaries. Yeah, and and they were applied only for luminaries, basically, and that got a bit mad. But that's a whole other history of twenty late late nineteenth century, early twentieth century astrology construction. But um, and still, there's a rationale there that wasn't understood. So sometimes some certain techniques are applied incorrectly because you're not respecting the. The, the, the structure in which is built, uh, and we have a problem there. Uh, so sure. we're not understanding it correctly. And that falls back to what we were talking about earlier on. Uh, people don't really understanding the, 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 the logic within astrology and going outside to get things in without really an understanding of the things. Sure. So the revival of astrology, one of the things that's revived is obviously that logic and some of the philosophy and the conceptual structure of Traditional astrology from prior to the modern period. But uh, the other thing that's happened is in the past two or three decades, suddenly, or one of the reasons why your first book was important in 2010 mm-hmm. when it came out is because there weren't a- other good introductions to traditional astrology. There were more advanced books that you could get, but you already had to take a lot for granted. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why your book has become so important over the past decade because it was one of the first ones that you could really. Start studying mm-hmm. astrology with from scratch, um, and maybe you might still have to refer to some other things, or maybe it might be a lot to dive into from the start. But you could pull it off, and that partially mm-hmm. came through you guys being sort of like the second generation of traditional astrologers who'd been using the techniques mm-hmm. for over a decade at that point and had internalized them enough to be able to not just know what it meant abstractly, but had been applying it in practice for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was what that was basically our idea at the time. Because when we started to write the book, um, the treaties, um, we um, well, the on the heavenly spheres, the treaties is it's the, the, name, the Portuguese, Portuguese name. name. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what happened is that we had the books basically that exist were reinterpretations of. Pre-existing books, for example, you have all the work that Zohar had done with Bonatti and mm-hmm. similar works where people were interpreting the words of someone else. Mm-hmm. And we early we started to see that being stuck to a same author or to one or two sources, it's not very healthy in terms of astrological education because you're not seeing things on the wider perspective. For example, I remember. Problems with which we had with Zoller's determination of the he leg or Zoller, because he he was reading Bonatti and he was saying, well, Bonatti does this, but it doesn't clarify. Yeah, that's true. But if you go beyond Bonatti and start to go to the sources Bonatti's reading, there are people who explain it better. Uh, yes. There's always someone who explains a little bit better the technique than than another author. It's a way of expression. And Bonatti is a bit. Uh Confused. And then uh, Montulmo criticizes Bonatti a yeah, lot. And you have yeah, Montulmo criticizing Bonatti. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bonatti and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny thing going on there. Uh, but for example, yes, we, seeing we, the we, ancient we criticizing each other, or it seems like the, I was reading recently, it seems like the primary motivation for Al Kabizi writing his introduction is he thought that Abu Mashar was too long winded and that the introduction, <laughs> that the lesser, lesser introduction was too short, but that the greater introduction was too long-winded. So he wrote mm-hmm. something in between the two almost. Yeah, exactly. And you can see, for example, one author that I like a lot is Ali Ben-Rajel, because Ali Ben-Rajel goes on and on saying, well, 
this guy says this, this one says that, and there's someone who has this opinion. And then he thought, but they're all wrong. I'm going to tell you how it is. And then he'll explain his digestion of the whole thing. Or, for example, Ezra, which is quite Ezra. a sharp-edged uh, author who simply dismisses things. He has one very funny. Yeah, which is it's the one about a technique for calculating something, the, the length of life or something. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, there's this author which he said, Well, there's this author, I don't recall the name, but you can check it later if you want to, is um, which he calls it the ovens or something. I'm not sure it's what it's a very strange name for a technique, the technique, the ovens. Okay. But and then he says something like, um, and I'm paraphrasing here that, but the, the technique is, is worthless, and the, all of that should be thrown into a oven because <laughs> it's completely useless. And okay. <laughs> his trace for dismisses that. And we have no idea what it is because we don't have the surviving yeah, book. I think it's a very unknown, obscure author. Yes, I, I don't think it's known uh, outside of that comment, but it, it's Ezra interesting. Ezra is very funny yeah. because he's just uh, so sarcastic about everything <laughs> and right. so blunt, you know, like this is not, not yeah. good and that's not yeah. good. So this, well, this what's interesting though is they often those the traditional authors will usually state what the tradition was or what the inherited tradition was or what their sources are saying and then they'll like state their opinion and it seems like that was like a continuous thing throughout the tradition yes. that we mm -hmm. we lost a little bit of in modern times. Yeah, yeah. That, that is also sorry. Uh, that is also because books. Uh, we have lots of books today, as you know, but mm -hmm. the, the books you have in your library. Are probably more than the ones in the the Library of Alexandria, in number. I mean, we have lots of books, and they didn't because the books were manuscripts. So they used the books also as like um, a repository. It's, it's a, uh, yeah, a repository of, a rep of knowledge. So yeah. Even if they repeat, didn't agree. Yeah, they would repeat the knowledge that came to them yeah. and then they would add their own. So this is mm -hmm. a, a time technique. It goes out until the modern age where you yeah. have the commentary. So that's this commentary thing. And you have Ptolemy, for example, which is known through a lot of commentaries yes. throughout or John, the ages. Or John of Saxony uh, commenting on Alcabitius. Or yeah. something commenting on Alcabitus, and sometimes the word of the commentator is quite important because it's going to explain something that the original author didn't, didn't put forward. So mm. Sometimes they used books mm. as repositories mm. of knowledge. So even if they didn't agree with something, they would yeah. they would write it down. They would keep it, and um, so the, we can see this: all the different mm. opinions, and they they just they don't eliminate them. They just yeah. keep them. Keep, yeah. And then they give their own opinion and they add their yeah. own knowledge from their own experience. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this widening of sources, it's quite important because then you can see things being clarified which are a little obscure in another author and that's quite important. And I was saying Ali ben Rajal, for example, for us was quite important at the, at the point because his treatise is very complete. Although yeah. I wouldn't recommend it for an, uh, uh, beginners because it is quite complicated to read it. It's a, it's a medieval construction, and it's it's he doesn't organize things, and that's for example one thing uh, which is quite important when reading sources is sometimes the information you want is not in the order or in the chapter where you expect it to be. For example, I recall Ali bin Rajal has something on the importance of essential and accidental dignities. So we're always fighting about, oh, which one is more important, which ones are really essential, which ones are just add-ons that you do. And suddenly you have 
He's discoursing on the length of life, and I think it's the Alcacodon bit or somewhere around that, that period. And then suddenly he stops what he's saying and he says, and the most uh, important essential, the essential dignities are these ones, and the most important ones are uh, accidental, are these ones, which are then the opposite are, the, are those. So he, so all of a sudden, he's doing, giving you a very precious information in the middle of something completely different. Mm -hmm. And this happens constantly. And that's why we sometimes need translation of an entire book. Because something that might clarify a technique which is not clear will be in an early chapter where he's talking about the signs and he would say, well, we weren't going to translate this because it's equal to everyone else. And sometimes it's not. And this is complicated to manage in terms of reading. Yeah, the, the book should be translated integrally, yes. Mm. For instance, um, this uh, this author, Ali Ben Rajal, I, I don't think you have uh, an English translation. Yeah, fragments, I think. Fragments. Uh, yeah, translated about part, the but not a lot. And you've, you've had access to that through translations from Castilian, or how did you access that text? Well, Castilian, yes. Yeah, and that, that, that one has was translated by um, Alfonso the Tenth in, in, the, in the 12th century. So there is a Castilian version from from very early on, from the 13th century on. So, um, and there's an edition. We have an edition of okay. the Castilian version, and we, although we speak Portuguese, we can we can manage yes. with medieval Castilian. Yes. Okay, so uh, you're able to because you speak port Portuguese, you can read that translation in that critical edition. And was it translated directly from Arabic into Castilian? Uh, yes. Yes. And okay. they, they very interesting. They 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 uh, calculated the chart, an election chart, to begin the, the to begin the translation, and they incorporate this in the book. Yeah, so we have the date, uh, wow. the, the time and date of the beginning of the translation, and the time and date of the ending of the translation. This is but quite interesting. For instance, returning to to Ali Ben Rajal, he, yeah. uh, for instance, when he talks about uh, the terms, we think, oh, well, the terms they are the same for everybody. But he, he explains the terms in a very interesting way. He says that the sign, for instance, Aries, is like one color. For instance, red. Aries would be red because of Mars. And then the term of Saturn in Aries would be a brownish red. And uh, the term of Venus would be a very soft red. And the term of the moon would be like a whitish red. So it's, the term of the moon, no, the term of Jupiter. Uh, yeah, the moon, it's impossible. The term of Jupiter, or, well, and it, it, it goes, goes on and uh, explaining the, the terms inside each sign in, um, in terms in of colors, colors. Which is quite interesting and, yeah. and really gives you an insight of how, how they're doing that and how they, they interpret the terms. So they are like mixing colors. So these are very supple things okay. that you pick up as you go to a, through a source. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a, it's a phrase. And I've, I've been studying manuscripts for the last uh, three years very hardly for my PhD. And you, you have these, if you don't read the whole thing, you miss some phrase that will give you the answer to what you need. And this is quite important. And what happened, and, and going back to our book and how the way how we build, is as we, we started to, to widen our sources, we were able to then filter out what is the essential. So, so, so the, 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 the only heavenly spheres was building this principle. So let's now explain this without having to recur constantly to the other author. And that was a choice which was, we're not going to com 
always being quoting, uh, quoting yeah. an, an, an older source. We're just sure. going to say which source we are using generally, but we're going to build the rationale up from scratch um, because I think that sometimes you need to do that. Of course, if you're working more academically as we are right now, you have to refer to back to sources, and that's quite important if you're studying historically and if you're going back to sources. But um, at some point, if you're if you want to teach someone astrology, sometimes you, you need to get your own things, and then you say, well, if you want to read a little bit more about this, then you go to Ptolemy, or you go to Abu Mashar, or you go to yeah. another author, which ex explains it. But I think that's a level two in terms of, of astrology for someone who's learning. First, you need to have an idea of the system, and then you can advance to, to a direct source. Yeah. And mainly because our students, if they have a good idea of the system, they can deal with any source. They don't mm -hmm. get stuck in small small differences like mm -hmm. uh, uh, this orb author numbers. says the orb of Venus is seven and the other says that it's six. So it's, and they get stuck. And the, if they understand the idea, they don't get stuck because mm -hmm. they have the concept. Sure. Uh, so this is something that we wanted to do. To, to teach I mean, astrology from scratch uh, without any other explanation exterior to astrology and in a way that um, collects and uh, I would say, well, collects and distills, so to say, mm -hmm. all the, the sources that we have read mm -hmm. instead of quoting. Yes, and one of the things that we opt for is when there, you have a divergence of techniques For, for example, the aspects, how are you going to calculate the aspects? And that's still an open question nowadays. If it is all sign, if it's not all sign, are they using five degrees? Are they using seven? Do they use the orb of the planets? How did, is it moieties? It's the whole orb. How does it work? And there's not an answer for that yet because we need, sometimes that's not in the, in the books. Um, but we, what we did was we gave the two options that were at the time, our understanding of how it worked, and William Lilly's Moiety system, which was at the time one of the major sources for English readers um, and traditional readers, uh, and still is in a certain way. Um, so people would know, okay, there are different approaches to this, but the idea of the aspect, it's still the same thing. And I think that's important. And it's good for people to know that there are different opinions on certain minor aspects. I mean, how do you do points. deal with that divergence in at this point? Because one of the issues that I've noticed over the past decade that um, astrologers are starting run in, to run into in studying traditional astrology is that there used to be just a few sources, so it was very easy just to master the just handful of you know traditional astrology books that exist. But now mm -hmm. there's such a huge diversity of different sources from the tradition, you know, because Ben. Ben Dykes has translated like 30 mm -hmm. books, and there's tons of academic translations that seem like they're coming out all of the time. And now it seems like there's such a diversity of opinions in the, the tradition at this point that sometimes people are struggling to figure out how to reconcile all of them or um, what to do in the case. I think you gave the answer already. You gave Sorry? the answer already. You said the diversity of opinions. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly that, the diversity of opinions. Because if people read the sources, uh, I think sometimes people just uh, kind of fall in love with one source and mm -hmm. they like that source very much, and that's right. fine. But they, they get this idea. 
of this author and this source. So that what you mentioned is exactly what you said, the diversity of opinions. Mm -hmm. If you read different sources and if you, if you approach, not horizontally, but if you approach that from another perspective, you can see the sources mm -hmm. and you must understand that each source comes from a different period, probably, or from a different culture or from a different, uh, slightly different kind of education. If you understand that, you can see what emerges is what they have in common. So you just don't get stuck with one degree of difference or something. Yeah, for example, um, let me see. Um, usually the divergencies occur with minor, minor uh, yes. facets of, of the technique. I was thinking on receptions and definitions of reception, for example. That's usually sure. st people struggle a lot of that. But we have to think at one point how important really is reception in an interpretation? Can you interpret the whole thing without giving that much importance to receptions? I think people are sometimes stuck because they're giving too much importance to that that small detail. And okay. and okay. We, we, we might have a doubt and we're interpreting something. So we might get it slightly off because we don't have the whole data. And we have also to assume that with astrology as with other interpretative technique. But you have to test it and see, okay, it might do this, it might do that. Let's see. And um, the problem is people mostly use these things in natal charts. And in natal charts... Natal, so. It's complicated because it's extremely subjective. And if it's our own natal chart, it's going to be even more subjective. And sometimes these things have to be tested in horaries, events, stuff like that, which is more concrete. You, you, you have a result, either that happened or didn't happen, or it happened like this, or it happened like that. With natal charts, it's quite complicated to test certain things. Um, House systems is another major thing. Um, and I think we're going to struggle with that one forever. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, it's clear it's, even that the medieval with some of the stuff that's come out from Abu Mashar recently, uh, it seems clear that they were struggling with it to some extent where they were inheriting both a sign-based tradition and a, and a quadrant or a degree-based tradition and, and different astrologers were trying to figure out what to do with it, but nobody ever really solved that. It just sort of it didn't completely go away as an go issue, on. but yeah. the whole sign was jettisoned, and then it just became a debate over which which quadrant system to use for a yeah. few centuries. Yeah, and and still we what the uh, well, I don't know if there's an answer. It's going to be ever uh, going to be a good answer for that. Which mm -hmm. one is best and why? Because it's just which one is it's why is it better than the other one? Um, right. But still, what I think we need, and, and, and I'm now speaking as an historian, we need examples as much as we can get them. And unfortunately, examples are rare. And as you go uh, further into older periods, you have fewer and fewer examples. And it's only examples that clarify exactly how they use their techniques. Because there are books and sources that have examples, but usually they're incomplete they're not very clarifying and people have tend to have this tendency to pick the worst examples possible to, yeah. to clarify something. <laughs> There's always something off that doesn't really explain it. And examples are very good, 
with the house systems, what I usually recommend, we, we, we use Alcabitius and we have been using Alcabitius since, since the tradition. So-called the old uh, system. The old system. Um, and mainly it's not, uh, well, I'm speaking personally now. I like the, the way it's calculated and the structure of the calculation, but that, but I don't think a mathematical justification will do it alone. What I've been I've, I've been stuck with Alcabitius since then because in predictive work I've found out that uh, at least in, in in the example charts I've been making making all these years the cusps work better in terms of explaining events in predictive work and I'm talking about cusps of uh, intermediate houses for mm-hmm. example people if you're having a doubt uh, in the cusp of the fifth. Um, and it's either Leo or Virgo, and you see people having children or having issues with children when the sun is ruling something. It's the rule of the year, or it's the rule of the subperiod of the third eye, or something similar, and not Mercury. And this is a constant throughout the predictive work. And then you see, okay, so let's see which house system here will give me sun as the rule of the fifth house and, um, and not Mercury. And then you, you try to select. And Alcabitus, for me, has been working fine. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the correct one, of course, because who knows. Um, but I think things have to be tested on this level and with yes. very objective things. Uh, and it's not going to be the way I relate to whatever subject in the chart that's going to really explain if the cusp is one sign or the other, because that's subjective. And... It's difficult to 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 understand. Um, I think we need to work it out with orreries and predictive work stuff like that. That's very precise. Either it describes an event or it doesn't describe an event. And if it doesn't describe an event, then we have to go back to the calculations, to the mathematics, to the logic around it, and redo it again and rethink it again. Sure. And this is a very complicated process. And it still hasn't been properly done with astrology nowadays. And also, uh, yeah, practice. And also, uh, sometimes I, I don't understand why people discuss certain matters in the sense that it does not contribute to a better practice. It's just a theoretical thing. So uh, I think we should revert to practice. Yeah, practice because will give us that. Some of these discussions are completely um, theoretical. Mm. And they, they don't um, actually test. They just say, uh, or, or they test in their own charts, which is not actually <laughs> a test. And they, um, they just discuss some details that are not um, useful, I would say. So if they, if they revert to practice, if they really put this in practice, as Louise said, um, I think most of these discussions would just, I wouldn't say go away because they are important, or, I have yeah, to or say. Or they would raise the, the proper questions. Sometimes exactly. we don't need the, the good answer, we need the, the, the good question. Exactly. Which question should be asking at this point. Yes. Uh, and we need, we can't assume. And I think the problem with astrology, and this is traditional, modern, or any kind of story, is people tend to assume. People get too confident and tend to assume things. We all commit that error. It's a grave sin, but uh, we all do it. Uh, and sometimes we need to go back and, well, let's let's turn down this to basics and see if it's really working or if we're just wishful thinking it into into action. 
uh, and it's complicated. It's a, it's a complicated process. It 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 a lot. We need to revise a lot of our pre uh, concepts on something, and it's, sometimes that's that's complicated to do uh, scientifically. Um, sure. Well, one of the things I've been noticing that's been happening in the traditional communities is there's a lot of new, sometimes debates that are coming up based on textual analysis when there's an ambiguity in the text and it's spawning multiple interpretations, which then are becoming new sort of sub-traditions in and of itself. Like one of them is the void of course moon definition. There's become a new debate about that. And I thought you guys must be familiar with it because it's based on like Sue Ward's interpretation of what Lily was doing with the void of course moon, which is based on an apparent inconsistency from how he defines the void of course moon versus how he seems to use it in the chart examples. And mm-hmm. one approach to defining what void of course means in that context versus the other alternative interpretation, which is the more common one versus even now there's an older Hellenistic one that's been revived in the last 10 years where, where we found the original definition and it was just talking about the moon not completing an aspect in the next 30 degrees, which is completely different mm-hmm. than those. So now all of a sudden there's mm-hmm. three void of course moon definitions that are being used in contemporary practice that are all derived from different uh, sort of textual mm-hmm. reads of different texts from the tradition. Yeah. Well, I usually well, now I'm thinking uh, historian and astrologer. As an historian, what I would do, and this is a project that we, we tend to do at some point, is we just comb whatever sources we have from mm-hmm. the, the earliest one to the latest one and see how th- that is defined. How, how do the they concept define develops. How the concept develops. And not only in the theoretical manuals, which is usually 90% of our, of our, of our data, but mm-hmm. also in practical examples where they are considering and interpreting the chart, are they considering this avoid, of course, or not? And then, um, astrology-wise, in terms of interpretation, what I usually say to students is this: Well, just look at it. Yeah. Instead of of worrying too much if it's void, of course, or it's not void, of course, what do you have there? Which is, for example, we don't know exactly. How to extend the void, of course, of a moon, for example. But because, for example, some people say, well, it's not making, it has to, to not make an aspect until it goes out of the sign. So, so there's that sign boundary thing. But the thing is, you have a chart with the moon that is not applying to any aspect. Is it void, of course? Is it not void, of course? Yeah. Is it going to change sign? It's not going to change sign. All of that can be interpreted in. Uh, before you label it void of course or whatever you want to call it so sometimes we for sake of clarity and this means in terms of astrological interpretation you just have to forget the, the, the concepts names. and yeah. the names and the labels and read the chart and see what's happening describe what's happening to that planet then you can at a conceptual level uh discuss and 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 study should i call that a void of course or shouldn't i do it so, but I first, think that's the, the basic. I first, think. we have to be able to inter, uh, interpret. Yeah. First of all, before labeling anything. Yeah. For example, avoid. Uh, for example, avoid. Of course, moon in an orary. For example, it's just something more where it's in a natal chart. It's not a big issue, uh, but in an orary or an event, you have avoid. Of course, moon, and so the moon does not complete an aspect in any kind of orb. Is that, that the definition of avoid? Of course, that you use. Yeah. In, 
until it uh, until it changes the sign. For example, it's going to change the sign. It's going to be at the end of Taurus. For example, it's going to shift to Gemini, and only when it enters Gemini, it will start to applying to a certain degree of a, of, a, of an aspect to a planet. So just to okay, clarify, is that the definition of void of course that you use and prefer is the one where the sign boundary does matter or do you ignore the sign boundary? Let's just say for- I usually, I usually ignore the sign boundary, I must say. Okay, so you do follow Sue's interpretation? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. there's a practical issue there and that's what I was going, uh, going to. For example, how do you describe this in terms of an event? So mm-hmm. you're having a moon in a certain sign, it's going to shift to another sign, and then it's going to apply to an aspect. And that's the order, the sequence that you need to be aware of when interpreting right. that event or that question. Um, is it void of course? Is it not void of course? Well, forget about that if you're in doubt, uh, because you're going to be stuck to it, an interpretation of what a void of course moon is and implies in the chart, which is important, but... You have that chart, which is a unique moment in time, which you need you need to interpret at that point. And what you're going to do is that you have the moon with a certain characteristic when you're doing the question, and you know if the moon is your 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 indicator of action or movement in that chart, mm-hmm. it's going to have to shift to another sign in order to accomplish something. Right. So that's what you need to interpret. So probably until something happens, there's going to be some kind of change in circumstance mm-hmm. that you need to be aware of in order to answer that question. And then you have the context of the question that might allow you to understand exactly what does that mean in that specific case. And I think this is more important in terms of interpretation than being stuck to a rigid definition of what the void of course moon is or not. Same thing with reception, which is also a big struggle for people. Should we consider it? Should we consider if it's with triplicity and terms? Should we consider if it's two dignities, if it's one, if it's a major, if it's not? Well, don't worry about that too much. Forget the names. Look at the chart and see what's there, what's happening there. And then you can interpret and you can put in all these concepts and uh, make out something important. For, For example, if you read tradition, you see that they give a certain amount of importance where you have reception uh, by term. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't usually pop up too much if you read the, the, the chapter on reception. They don't right. usually refer to reception at term. But when you go into the interpretation and the, the delineation of the houses, that pops up constantly. Are they being in reception by term? Does that give it strength? So that means that they're attributing some kind of strength to that configuration. So is it a reception or not? It doesn't matter. It, what it matters is it's something that you might need to focus your attention on because it might be important. So these kinds of things might help a student or someone who's interpreting to forget about these things. That doesn't mean that it's not important to discuss technical issues. How do we call these situations and how do we going to define our own art and the terms of our own art? That's important. That's extremely important. But we can't be stuck there. Uh, and that's a sure. way that we've been dealing with tradition and the contradictions of tradition a lot in, in this time. Because, and sometimes we have to have in mind one thing. Sometimes there are mistakes. Sure. Sometimes we say, oh, Abu Masar defined something strange. I was reading it in the other chapter the other day and I said, well, he made a mistake here or the translation made a mistake here or the, the manuscript copier somewhere along the timeline made an error. 
And it's obviously an error because everyone else says something different. So mm -hmm. we need to have a, also good sense in this aspect, uh, which is, well, they might do errors and we've seen them doing a yes. lot of errors. Yeah, I can, I can give you an example of an error, of several errors. I went to the British Library with mm. my teacher, Liana Saif. I think you know her, uh, at yeah, least by she's name. A, she Liana, she's written a work on Abu Mashar and also is at the Warburg Institute. She just did a translation yes. of like the Picatrix that I'm excited about. Yeah, she's mm. amazing. She's yeah. amazing. And we went together to the British Library, and I, uh, I asked for uh, this book of Ali Ben Rajel in Castilian, and she asked for the manuscript in Arabic. And she read, and we had to, to, to speak very quietly because we were in the middle of the British Library. She wow. read a, a segment in Arabic, and I read the same in Castilian, and we both translated it into English. Wow. And there were grave mistakes. For instance... Right. in the Castilian. They, yes, yes, because the Arabic was the original. Mm. Uh, for instance, they, um, they have confused Saturn with Venus. Wow, okay. They couldn't be more different. Also, there are words in Arabic that are, um, well, you know Arabic, and sometimes they are difficult to translate. For instance, they had something in red. We, we had noticed this. They had something that they said it is red and it should be green because red and green in Arabic are similar. They are okay. written in a similar way. <laughs> so um, It's easy to, to mistake. It's them. easy to make a mistake between red and green in Arabic. As it is, for example, in Western manuscripts, sometimes they mix up Venus and Mercury a lot. Because you, if you don't draw the, 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 the crescent of Mercury on top well, and sometimes it's just scribbling up, you get an error. Right. So, it that's is one of the other very hazards. important to look at your originals as, mu as much as possible. And as Luis said, to look at the original, uh, the old thing, not just a, a segment. Yeah. Because, because medieval yeah. books are not are not organized the way we organize our minds. They are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you and have this practice. Is, I've talked to Ben oh. about this. He's been on the podcast recently to talk about some of his recent books because he went back and learned Arabic so he could go back to the original manuscripts because he realized that the Latin translations were sometimes wildly different or were shortened or the, the meaning was changed or that the original language was richer than the Latin translation so that there was a good reason to go as far back as you could in the original text. Yeah, yeah. It's, that, that's a very important thing and important to do different manuscripts also in terms of translation because sometimes if you stick to a manuscript, you'll get a version. If you stick to another, it's slightly different because we're talking about hand copies. So people do make mistakes in hand yes. copies. Although I must say, sometimes you have wonderful copies and that was a whole art of copying books. And sometimes they didn't even know what they were talking because they wouldn't read too much uh, or they wouldn't know the language too much. Um, but still you need to, to do the critical editions, which is to comb the most manuscripts that you can find, the most important ones, and then see if, if there are differences. And sometimes there are. Like, uh, even in Arabic versions of a manuscript on astrology, you might find chapters that don't exist in other manuscripts or errors in copy where you did simply jumped uh, a segment because either they didn't have it or they were making a mistake. And it happens. So it's, it's important to have this analysis. 
Um, sometimes it's irrelevant in terms of uh, of, the, the, of the matrix of the of the, of the doctrine, but sometimes it might clarify something that we're doubtful of. But even so, and again, I stress this again because I think this is very important for people studying astrology, is we cannot be, although this is important and this is absolutely vital work to be done and the translations offers a, a rich opportunity to do this, we still cannot be too much strict with terminology or else it's going to be a nightmare. And we lose um, the most lose. important thing. Yeah. Yeah. For example, I'll give you an example from my work. I'm, I'm working on the, at the time, so the transition between the 16th and the 17th century, where you have a strong focus of mathematics in, in astrology. So it is a time where you get those long tables where they attribute a point to every little configuration that you can find and you can have that in a simple version like you have in william lily and notice i'm calling william lily stable simple or you can have it to aspects every single aspect so it's a moon six styles mercury you give it one point if it squares mercury you give it minus one point and you have these very minute things which i don't know how they would apply that because the hours to calculate the whole the whole right. counting of a, of a value of a planet but you have these things and if you get too much stuck into what kind of point am i going to give to 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 uh, a configuration you're not interpreting it you're going around if it's value four or it's three and then there's a struggle because you have all a faction that said it's three and a faction that said it's four and right. perhaps it's meaningless. And you lose sight <laughs> of the most important. And that's, yeah. that has to be uh, said. And then, well, of course, there's experience. Um, we see, does it work? Doesn't it, doesn't it work? So how? Yeah, and, and, that, and that's what's so important now. Yeah. And that kind of leads into your new book because you took, you had about 10 years of traditional astrology under your belts by the time you wrote the first book on the heavenly spheres, which came out, at least the English version came out in 2010. Mm -hmm. But then it's now been another 10 years and you've written a follow-up book which is meant to be sort of like a companion or almost a commentary yeah. to the first book and it's titled mm -hmm. uh, Traditional Astrology Course, Essential Concepts and Interpretation Basics and it just came out uh, this year in 2019, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's the book. Yes. Yeah. So um, I noticed, I was just looking at, I looked at the old book again um, on Amazon and I noticed there was a review where the top voted review gave it a good review and said it was an amazing book, but it said that there were so many concepts that were thrown at it that it might be overwhelming for um, a new student of astrology and it almost needed like some sort of commentary or a teacher to guide you through the book, the first book. And it almost seems like that's what the role that this book serves is to it walk is. the person through and and take yeah. them like as a teacher and sort of take them by the hand and guide them through learning traditional mm -hmm. astrology from the basics. Yeah. yeah, what we did was um let me think. I think what was 2010 when the English came out, we decided to do a course. Mm -hmm based on our, our, our classes, our live classes, in which mm. we, tr we try to write it down and say, okay, if we're going to teach that as a class, so we've done the, 
the subject, so the the the, the, map, the, the, the theory. Now we do let's do it the practice. How do you teach this in in lessons? And that's how this book pops up. So he he was published in in, in Portuguese around 2012. 12, um, I don't 11, I don't recall exactly the date, but sometime around then. So the transition comes a few years after. So the book is already old, I must say, in terms okay. of how we we see things and how we do things. We but would although this do is it a slightly version, different. <laughs> um, One of the things that's funny is I saw. Uh, the other day on a forum, somebody was recommending your book. It was on like Twitter or Reddit or something like that. And they were recommending the English translation. And there was somebody that wrote in the comments, they were like, I wish there were more books like this written in Portuguese because I can't read English very well. Then the person <laughs> let them know that actually I pointed it out. I said, well, the book was originally written in Portuguese and gave yeah. them the link. <laughs> so there's people finding your work in English that don't realize that there's Portuguese versions of it and that there's are very excited to, to learn that. Well, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's funny how how how, how yeah, information circulates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. But um, yeah, we did the book as a sort of companion. So like we do, we would find in a in an academic manual of some sort. You always have the the theoretical book, and then you have the exercise book that guides you into the practical aspects of things. So we try to teach interpretation a bit more in this book, in this new book, than than. Then the the, the the original one, the only heavenly spheres allows because you can give examples, but you cannot be interrupting the whole thing. And as to the person to comment, and that is not the first time that it's too complicated. It has too many concepts. It's true, but we need to see astrology is complicated. Right. Um, I think that's one thing that traditional astronomers in the last it's complex. It's complex. Say, it's, yeah. it's not complicated. It's complex. Uh, it's a sure. complex knowledge, and that's one thing that tradition. Um, offered us is is the, the view of this complexity. I remember always there's a tradition. I think it's from, I might be mistaken on this, but I think it's Robert Hans uh, translated. I think it's the Opusculum Astrologicum of of Shonos. I think it's in that one where he makes a, a rather um, non-academic uh, footnote. Yeah, a, personal footnote. a very personal footnote, which I find is very interesting. He says, well, this is m something like, this is much more complex than anything we, we knew astro Western astrology had at this point. Yeah. This is something done in the 80s, I think. One of the first, very first translations. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because that's true. When, when you come from... Uh, what they knew back in the 80s. And then suddenly you get into this complexity. So wait, wait a minute, this is much more complicated, much more yeah. complex, much more than what we you, we are used to. And, and right. it's true. And it's very difficult. And I understand for someone who's coming into astrology, it's difficult to observe all these concepts. It's true, but... We, we try to make them palatable. Yeah, we try to make them as palatable <laughs> as possible. Sure. But it's still complex, yes. And sometimes you, as a student, you you have to digest it properly to, to also, be able to apply it. And also that's the, the gap, sorry. sorry. That's the gap we try to, to fill with the second uh, companions, I would say. Exactly. Also because most people had studied some kind of astrology before, and mm -hmm. there's nothing more difficult than to learn something the second time. Cool. Because you learn something once, and your neurons just get this path. <laughs> right. And then you need to re redo all this idea. So it's difficult to learn the second time. And one of the, the, the things that this uh, our second book has, the, the second English book has, is 
we try to develop, we, we are always doing this because we think this is absolutely essential. We try to develop a specific method to learn, to teach astrology, mm -hmm. a very specific. It's not a contemporary method. We don't begin with the, uh, the planets or this. We begin with the system and then we develop from there. Mm -hmm. And, um, we try to, 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 to think as a medieval or, uh, yeah. Astrologer, the, the, still the structure right, yeah. of the heavenly spheres is based um, loosely on how an astrology manual would teach yeah. astrology in the past, in which you start by the system and then you build the whole rationale through the system out, mm -hmm. uh, with a few changes for a more contemporary yes. uh, way of thinking because we need to adapt to to, to current day thinking. We can we expect people yeah. to to come back to, to, to but, a frame of mind that they don't have anymore, but it's still... Exactly, basic. they don't have anymore. And uh, because we now are very, we, I would say, very Cartesian. We are mm. very, uh, well, very Cartesian. There's no other way to, to put it. And this is kind of a pre-Cartesian frame of mind. And we have to, we have to relearn this mm -hmm. kind of thinking. And um, it's like learning a different language. We cannot just go with our own language and try to apply mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. we have to learn a different language with a different uh, grammar a different rules not mm -hmm. only different vocabulary not only different ideas but different methods yeah. of applying these ideas yeah. and someone coming from 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 uh, modern astrology contemporary astrology this might be, might get difficult because um you learned as Ayelena was saying you learned in a different way, so you structured your mind in a different way. And that's a very difficult point for some of the students. And we usually start, for example, Morinos, which was for a long time one of the major sources we had of a traditional thing. But Morinos is a very dangerous tradition because uh, he's a revisionist and right. he, he was he's not giving changing uh, he's things. Not give, yeah. He's not giving you uh, what the, the normal way that an astrologer coming from a medieval tradition into the modern era would work on. Um, and for example, in that aspect, William Lilly is much better. And I think of being one of the latest sources that we have, and for English speakers, it's wonderful because it's in English mm. and it can be understood in English. He still thinks as a, a, medieval, a medieval traditional yeah. astrologer would do, in which he mixes very, he does a very good mixture of specific meanings coming from house, house positions or house rulerships with a general meaning coming from the planets themselves. So he managed to, to do that very well. So he's a good author to study if you're trying to understand how to think certain, certain interpretations. Yeah. And at the same time, because he gives you a lot of examples, you can see where he bends his own rules because he's working with a specific case, which is something that you see every astrologer in practice does that. You have the rules, and it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of, are you going to label that a void, of course, or not? It's okay, you have that problem, but then you have to shift the rules for and that specific case without... It violating the rules of astrology at the same time so you have to keep on those boundaries of what's permissible in astrology but adapting it to a specific configuration that you're facing 
Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Lily because I've uh, recently I spent ten years focusing on the Hellenistic tradition. And I finally got my book out, and then I've been more recently going forward to the end of the tradition and studying Lily. And I just did an episode on Lily last month with Nina Griffin, mm-hmm. and also starting to study Morinus and some of those other authors. So I'm almost going the reverse direction from some mm-hmm. other traditional astrologers that started with the Renaissance and then went backwards. Um, but it's interesting that contrast that you had with Lily, where you might treat you feel like Lily is more of a traditionalist, whereas Marinus is more of a revisionist in, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Marinus is revising astrology to fit um, a specific a specific belief that he has and a specific belief of that time, in which they're trying to astrology to fit the scientific changes and the minds changing, the mindsets changing that are occurring in the 17th century. And he starts to do a terrible thing, which they all do in one point or the other at that period, which is they start to extracting out parts of astrology they think are not rational. And their, their, their definition of rational, uh, it's dangerous. Very because narrow. It's very narrow. <laughs> okay. For example, the system of terms gets completely dumped out, uh, and a lot of interpretations get dumped out. And that is a process that's much earlier than Morinos, and it's we have sure. To well, what's interesting that. how Lily is already changing sub stuff through the Back to Ptolemy movement um, as one of yeah. his things. I mean, is that one of the major areas? Because you guys seem like you specialize more in, let's say, medieval astrology, roughly speaking, mm-hmm. compared to Renaissance yeah. astrology. Where is Lily? Although he's a good synthesizer. Where does he differ in major ways from the medieval tradition, or how do you see wow. as medieval astrologers, mm. Lily is different from what the medieval astrologers are doing? Aside from is the back to Ptolemy thing and the fact that he sides with Ptolemy so many times when there's discrepancies, is that one of his major differences with the medieval yeah. tradition, or are there other major yeah. uh, departures? Well, the, yeah, there are. Uh, let's see. We have to see that Lily, although he's good, and, and I, I keep. What I told earlier it is a very good example to study. He's mm-hmm. come is on the end line of a tradition that has been changing since the late 15th century. And Elena, right. in her PhD thesis, focused on, on those, the late 15th century on those changes of Ptolemaic astrology yeah. and those discussions. Should we use these terms or the other? So you have a shift in essential dignities. You have a shift on meanings of houses. You have a shift. On several minor aspects of the tradition, some are completely driven out. So when we get to Lily, there's a lot of these changes already occurring and already setting down. So, for example, his change of triplicities. Mm-hmm. So he's using only two triplicities. So any interpretation that you have in the medieval tradition and in the Hellenistic of using three triplicities to uh, calculate times, meanings, uh, whatever, it's gone. It has been gone for two centuries almost. Okay. They lost it. Um, the terms are Ptolemaic, are not uh, Egyptian, but that shifts them also to Ottoman. I think that would be the ma- a major problem. But for example, the uh, the use of the of the predictive techniques is completely different. Although his, I would recommend, and I do that, we do that with our students to study his textbook on how he does the prediction because he does a wonderful interpretation of primary directions, even if we. Uh, consider that he's using um, the Kepler aspects, so the, what we call today the minor aspects. If you mm-hmm. ignore the minor aspects, if you're not going to use them, at least we could look at how is he in interpreting certain connections of the planets 
whether if it's a big quintile or a square, it doesn't matter. We just need to see what he's doing. Um, but for example, he remits uh, the the progressions, uh, the, the perfection, sorry, to a very low role in the whole system, mm. while, the, while the perfections are the core of any uh, um, interpretation of predictive work uh, since whenever they, they came up with them and then they developed the system. Um, they are the, the central core that makes the whole system uh, unite in which you have the revolutions and, and every other information coming in by the guidelines of the perfections. So he lost that. He is not using that, although he makes a well, excellent work with um, combining directions and soul revolutions. So there's a major change. From, from from the tradition in which he dumps completely the ruler of the ear almost doesn't make any any okay any and that actually raises a question for me just about your practice do you perfect by sign or by house because I'm noticing that this is becoming a large debate in the tradition partially due to the house division issue but also due mm-hmm. to that splitting off in the medieval tradition as a result of the house division issue mm-hmm well, by sign, uh, we do by sign, okay. what we do. Yeah, what we do and teach is the you, you do the whole movement of the of the of the points of the chart of the significators, um, degree by degree throughout the year. So they will all do the the, the thirty degrees in, in one year, okay. um, and you note the aspects they do to the natal chart, and you note the changes. And for example, in terms of rule of the year, which is a major major central focus of the interpretation if you have a change so if you say you have 20 degrees uh, capricorn um, rising after four months in terms of timing it will shift well capricorn, well, capricorn is Aquarius, not a good example, not a good example <laughs> would be saturn saturn but uh, there will still be a shift so for example from uh, 20 aquarius four months afterwards you have jupiter coming in as the ruler of the year and this is what I've been with what we've been doing, and our experience. And here again, I remit to experience has been giving excellent results in terms of oh, yeah. if you if you see the, the the shift in the in the sign when where the ascendant moves, representing a major um, shift in in the, in the person's life, and we've been using. Directions, solar returns, perfections, and transits occasionally uh, for for the, the predictive work, and you see very well the major shifts. The timings work excellent with the perfections yeah. more okay. sometimes than you would, would work with the direction or transit. Which is and just just to clarify, because last month there was an episode on perfections that'll come out before mm-hmm. uh, this episode, but that means so you calculate the degrees and then you move everything forward at a rate of 30 degrees a year and therefore mainly it moves helical points yeah, mainly sorry. like the the sun moon and ascendant the sun moon ascendant the um part of fortune in, uh, and no the, the mid heaven and the part of fortune the part of fortune and the mid heaven yes basically because okay. we we uh we replaced the cgg by the mid heaven in the in uh in perfections Okay, so then, it, but it's then it's also almost more like a, a progression or like a primary direction in that it's moving forward at a certain rate each month, and then some of those points that you're directing will change signs at different times during the year, yeah. which will then indicate shifts yes. during the course of the year. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. And you can of course use the, the other planets, but you t- we were talking about two, like you do in the primary directions, 
but you're using it's too fast to have all the plants moving there. You might do that if you're looking at a specific house ruler, for example, for someone, if a person asks you for a specific topic, but if you're doing just the general thing, you use the hierarchical points basically to, to do the major shifts in, 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 the, in the year. And, okay. and this is something that we, we extracted from our reading of Ali Ben Rajal and other authors because they seem to hint at this kind of, of, of movement in one point or the other. You know, in between certain words, you see, well, if he's going, if he's saying this, he has to, to be using a degree technique, not a scientific technique or a house technique. But you still see, for example, in Ezra, I think it's Ezra, my problem is, is so many people, I, so many authors, <laughs> I, I sometimes mix them up. I think it's Ezra at at some point lists a, a number of um, lists the main uh, movements that you will consider in prediction, and he says he states both the uh, perfection by sign and by house. So sometimes they're they're doing two things, or they're doing a quick uh, method by house, which is easier to, to calculate, and at the same time, they're doing the directions by, by degree. So I would love to tell you, while right. they're doing and, this, they're doing that. And there was that one other that area we, I meant again, to... We knew, yeah. Sorry, I uh, skipped for a second, <laughs> didn't mean to interrupt, but there was one other area I meant mm-hmm. to ask when you were talking about reception, which is another debate that's come up recently, again, amongst traditional astrologers based on different textual interpretations, where some of the Renaissance astrologers are reading Bonatti, and there's a couple of delineations where he's doing like hoary questions for the sixth and eighth house, where they've mm-hmm. interpreted interpreted it to mean that reception that that malefics are mitigated um, when they receive other planets in their domiciles, but that malefics do not mitigate when the malefic is in the domicile of another planet and there's reception that mm-hmm. it's not a mitigating thing. Um, and this seems mm-hmm. to be coming out of a, again, it's a textual interpretation of one text primarily of Bonatti, but then mm-hmm. there's a debate compared to the other medieval authors who seem to say that reception is like a universally mitigating factor when it involves malefics. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a debate that you're familiar with, or do you have like a strong opinion one way or another on that debate? That's one of those where I, I would look at the chart first before making a decision. Okay. Um, I was thinking, for example, if you have Saturn in Cancer um, squaring a Mars in um, in Libra, where where you have both debilitated malefics and the one mm-hmm. in Capricorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you have that kind of configuration, it's going to be a, a harsh configuration, uh, whatever it signifies. Even if you consider that there might be receptions or, or stuff like that, so. Um, yeah, it, it, it depends is. really. I, I, I would, um, what I would like to do at this point when I have a 72 hour day <laughs> to work with is would be to, to, to really look at the sources and see what's happening. I, I'm always very cautious of uh, Renaissance interpretations of uh, medieval authors because. By the time, by the, the end of the 15th, as I was telling early, and the 16th century, they're revising a lot of things. So we need to be very careful how they're interpreting things. 
Mm-hmm. I would go for the medieval. Usually, the medieval sources are more in line with the tradition. They're more consistent throughout the tradition, with a lot of exceptions, of course, uh, than the the Renaissance. Because in the Renaissance, there's a, a cut there. That doesn't mean that you have you don't have excellent works doing there and an excellent uh, synthesis of astrology, quite good. But still, they're working into they 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 are changing certain concepts within astrology they 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 are cutting down they're simplifying they 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 are trimming it down for a more logical approach to astrology and we need to be careful uh when doing that so um that's where i think history of astrology is very important is yeah. to understand special the history of techniques that's yeah. that's our project yeah. studying the history of techniques and also uh when you ask something like uh, do you think um reception is better this way or better that way uh, uh, my question is how much does this i really need to 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 look at the chart and see how much does this change yeah. because as louis said both planets would be would be debilitated so, so what, what how much in practice how much does this change in in practice if you're if you're looking for reception to mitigate a hard configuration Well, that, you might that, be that, disappointed. There you have the, the answer. It, you're already trying to search anything that might soothe something that you know it already at it start. Difficult. That's difficult. So that's a big point. I think reception can mitigate certain certain difficulties, Slightly. of course, but doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. It's, <laughs> it, it's not. It's it's um, a third level of the interpretation of that configuration. Okay, it sure. might soothe. It might change things. A term might do that. For example, I've verified for if you have a debilitated planet, which is in its own term, it 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 usually uh, gives you a much more efficient way of acting than one that it's not, and that in itself might mitigate a difficult configuration. So we really need to to look for it. I, I think one of the main problems uh, and the problems here is like one of the main questions in astrology would be. To understand um, how much each factor really impo- is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, if you have the reception, as Louis said, uh, is it uh, something that is life changing or it's just a, a detail mm-hmm. in a, a difficult configuration, as you asked? Or if you have a, a good uh, term that will help slightly. Mm-hmm. So, how much does all these factors uh, contribute? To mm. the chart, and we have to look at the chart, yeah. and again we have to go back to the chart and look at the chart as I would say, like a, a singularity. This chart, even if we have people with the same chart, they have different. They are different people. So uh, this chart is each chart is a singularity, and we have to look at the chart integrally. Mm-hmm. If we focus too much in one thing, or if we just extract one of the concept and discuss the concept theoretically mm-hmm. we might lose uh, sight of its practical application yeah. and we are not by saying this we are not trying to escape the question mm-hmm. it's really the way we work yeah <laughs> so, um, and i was thinking for example debilitated planets which is always a question is it debilitated is it not does it harm the planet how much does it harm is it useful and that's questions that pop up as you study and and 
What I've always said to students as we can, we have to see that even when a planet is debilitated, the planet will have a certain interpretation. For example, you see that uh, in manuals and where you have, for example, let me think if I can get a good one, um, Mars in Cancer, where they sometimes say they're good in businesses and they're good... Well, it has um, triplicity. Yeah, but so you have a debilitated planet, and they give it correct, uh, good attribution. So they give it a specific attribute for 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 that configuration, and it's still debilitated, and it will probably will have its problems, but it's still able to act in a certain in a specific area and produce a specific effect, which is positive or constructive, or the person can use it constructively, and we need to focus that. Because if we're getting too much into, well, again, labeling, uh, this is a debilitated planet, this is uh, whatever, it's complicated. And I've only seen and in practice, and you practice. lose sight. And for example, in debilitated planets, they usually, this I've seen in practice and, 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 and in, in textual uh, evidence, which is it's only when a planet is extremely afflicted that you really see the bad things when you have a debilitated planet, which is at the same time retrograde and has combust. a square of Saturn and it's combust and everything just comes in together, then you have a, a huge red alert uh, because you might have a problem being signified by that planet. But you need to have a very heavy configuration to be clear on this. Just a debilitated planet, it's yeah. not right. Well, and that's one of the things why I think mitigations are, are kind of important, though, and represent something that's unique that traditional astrology has brought to the table in contemporary mm -hmm. astrology. Because in 20th century astrology, even concepts like benefic and malefic were rejected under the mm -hmm. premise where they would say, we'll see Saturn in this chart. Sometimes it's very, this person's had very terrible events in their life, and sure, it looks quote unquote malefic, but then they'll point to another chart and say, this person. Saturn is perfectly fine in their chart, so it's not okay to call it a malefic. Uh, but they were wow. the part of the technical thing that was missing from that discussion was that traditional astrologers would always take into account a host of mitigating conditions that could alter yeah. the condition and the manifestation of any planet. Mm -hmm. But that's where one of the considerations like reception comes into play, because it's one of many potentially mitigating mm -hmm. conditions that help you to identify what is the worst case scenario versus what are the, the shades of gray in between? Yeah. And there are more than 50. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it is, you know, it is. It is a complexity. There, there it is. It's, um, let's say, I would say it's more organic uh, in terms of tradition because you have all these subtleties that have to come into to mind. Uh, um, for example, I'm thinking again, a debilitated planet, which is right on the MC. It will define a lot of the, the profession, and it doesn't need to be negative in itself. Again, the dispositor of that planet might be in a good condition, in a good house, and with certain dignities. Um, you might have an aspect of a benefic planet that, or of a luminary that stabilizes that. You might have an IE's condition, for example. Even debilitated, yes. Yeah, which stabilizes the, the, the action of the planet. So you need to have that into account, and it's extremely useful. And, and uh, the um, planet 
although in the tenth house is not the only one to define the the person's uh, perfection. Exactly. For instance, so, the ruler of the tenth, the three planets, the three planets of vocation, that, vocation. Well, all of that, and so you need to mix up these things properly. Uh, and you're correct. It, it has a palette of, of of mitigations and of complexity of interpretation, which is important. But we cannot be too stuck on it, or else we'll. I think the problem with the discussion sometimes is that we stick too much to definition. And again, I say it's an important thing to define one's tools and one's concepts in in, in a science, in a body of knowledge, as astrology is. But then we have the practice, and and we need to sometimes go over it to, to get an answer. Sure. I um, guess I just wanted to establish yeah. if you guys see reception involving malefics as a universally mitigating factor, which seems to be the statement that's in a lot of medieval texts, or if there are exceptions where you don't see mitigation as a, reception, as a mitigating factor at all, which is a new development or a new opinion that some traditional astrologers are stating. Well, what we see is that um, Let's see oh, yeah. how we it, is, it, it is, is a mitigating, mitigating factor, <laughs> but it depends of what kind of reception we are talking about. Yeah, if and they are both debilitated, exactly. It's if you have both debilitated planets, they will assist themselves. Yes, they will assist each other, but they're debilitated. So the level of assistance one can give it's limited. Yeah. It's like the, we have to follow the, the root principle of that, which is um, disposition. So. If a planet is moderately moderately dignified, let's think, and but its dispositor is very weak in the chart, it will affect the the the, the, the outcome of that planet because the planet that that gives you, even if there's no reception. So if if uh, the planet that rules that that area, which defines part of the of the, of the characteristics of the sign, is injured so it won't assist that much or if you have a reception it won't assist that much so that's the root principle so reception has to come from the the, the basic which is disposition it's a development of a, it's a specific condition of disposition so if we say that well the rule of the ascendant has triplicity but its dispositor is exalted so the, the the moderate condition of dignity is a bit uh, uplifted. Okay, so if it's uh, on fall, it stumbles a bit. It's it's more unstable. Um, so the same the same principle should be applied to reception. So if the plant is debilitated, it can help. Yes, there's goodwill. Yes, but if it's debilitated, it doesn't have the power to act in its full. So. It helps, yes. It but helps. It I would say yes. It mitigates somewhat, but it doesn't help as much as a reception by a strong planet. So that would be our position on on on, on the topic. I think. Sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you while we still have time about your academic projects, because one of you just recently completed your PhD, and the other is about to finish yours, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you first. You well, finished. we still will be. Well, I have. Yes, I have finished my PhD, and now I have. Um, I will. Uh, I will be in um, Germany for six months for a, a postdoc. Um, okay. About all, again with the topic of astrology, so I'm. I'm really very lucky because I get to work in what I love, and Louise is finishing his PhD. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I think in May. Yeah, in May yeah. we're organizing a conference here, an academic conference on the history of astrological techniques. We, we should have details about that around November, I think. With uh, wonderful scholars, we are very happy. We gathered five to seven scholars. We still have to confirm everyone. And we'll be discussing exactly history of astrological techniques. Oh, we can, we can say the names of people who already confirmed. Yeah, we already have uh, Charles, uh, Charles, Charles Burnett, Burnett, Professor um, Charles Burnett, Dorian, uh, Dorian Greenbaum, which we have already uh, spoke of her today. We'll have Shlomo Sella, Professor Shlomo Sella is also coming, who is an expert in Ezra, and he's done wonderful translations and editions of Ezra, which I would recommend anyone to get. And... Um, Stephen? Uh, Stephen van der Broeke is also coming. He's worked a lot on astrology teaching uh, in Renaissance uh, period. And who am I missing? David Just. David Just, which is a wonderful researcher on terms of astrological manuscripts and also techniques and authors. So I think we got a nice team to start up uh, <laughs> a debate. A, someone else. Uh, There's Dorian, Charles, Stephen, uh, David. Us. <laughs> and? Us. Well, us. Yeah, but there was someone. Six, I think it's six people. Well, there's no. us. Well, we had a uh, few people confirming others, unfortunately, couldn't come. So we'll have it, but we'll have that, that information soon and we'll send it to you. Uh, and that will be in May in, in Batalha, which is um, a Gothic monument. It's a very beautiful um, monastery. And um, now it's converted into a, a cultural center. It's a beautiful monument. Gothic. So it's we're going to be talking about astrology and history of astrology in uh, academic context. An academic context, of course, is academic uh, sponsored um, uh, conference. And uh, let's say it's going to be the startup of a project uh, which we think would and be useful to, to get into the history of astrological techniques and astrological practices, which I think it's quite useful for those, uh, especially those studying tradition. Yeah. I think it will, uh, will we, be a, a good output for for this for them in the project. And the, this is part of our <clears throat> of our ongoing project, the Astro project, which is exactly yeah. the study of astrological tradition, because the the study of astrological techniques, and it's more like an internalist study, because we have very good work, very good work in the history of astrology, very good, I would say, but most of these works are from the externalist point of view, like um, the impact of astrology in society or the impact of astrology in religion or something, or political uh, political mm -hmm. aspects, like Monica Zolini, she, she has done a very good work yeah. in the political uh, aspects of astrology, or um, Rutkin, Daniel, um, Rutkin to my... Uh, the also. philosophical and the cosmological so, and all yeah. that. So, so we have people doing... It's Rutkin, the person that was missing. Yeah, Rutkin is always uh, oh, also Rutkin is speak also there. Wow. coming with us. Yes, <laughs> that's a dream but, um, team of like all of the current is, leading scholars on and academic scholars on the history of astrology right now. Yeah. And the, the the place where it's going to happen is also very 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 yes. nice. And we, we expect to publish the results. Then um, we'll see. This is still still in the making, um, but, uh, yeah. but we were saying. All, most people have done very good work from the um, political, social, and religious aspects of astrology. 
And uh, there are a few works uh, on the uh, technical aspect of astrology, and this is what we want to develop. Mm -hmm. We want to collect all the work that is already done, and it's very good. There's another scholar we would love to have with us, Stephen Eileen, uh, Stephen Eileen, who, who oh, yeah. published a very excellent article on the terms and 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 um, and the Ptolemaic terms and it, its historical uh, background. Uh, but he couldn't come. Unfortunately, he couldn't come. Also, yeah, that's too bad. But uh, we see still on on the team, let us say, uh, and um, we hope to produce some in the. In the following next years, we will hope to produce some good work on historical research of uh, astrological practices, technical, and how they influence it. Because one of the things that has been very important in the history of astrology nowadays is that people are starting to realize, historians are starting to realize, that astrology has influenced a lot of the technical advances, for example, with astronomy, for example, instruments. Instruments reflect a lot of... Uh, the astrologer's needs, and, and that's a very, it's opening up the field. Nowadays, we, we can find a lot of excellent scholarly work done on this on this topic, but we want to do it from the point of view, as Elena was saying, from the internalist point of view. Yeah. See, how does astrology operate itself as a knowledge in several epochs, and how does it develop? What, how how does it work the inner discussion? What we're, we're talking about? How does it work the inner discussion on concepts? For example, the, the example you're giving, reception. How does it change from a certain concept uh, in Hellenistic or medieval uh, traditions and then pops up into, into the Renaissance with a certain a different perspective? How did that come to be? Is there a um, logical reason? Is there a rationale behind that change? Or it's just as you said, possible interpretation of a specific text which became influenced at a certain point. So if you understand that, if you understand this history and this development, you can more or less understand practice and all yes. the consequences that this kind of thinking, changes in thinking might have. And hopefully not get stuck in uh, in problems. Yeah, yeah. And it might uh, help solve tech, uh, practical aspects. See, should I consider this? Should I consider that? How 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 does the concept change through time? And then exactly. if we know that, and if we have a good research done on that kind of aspect, then we can make better decisions in how to use it in terms of practical astrology. Sure, um, or at least to make a more informed decision if you understand all exactly. of the different options that are available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and speaking, it's, it, it's always a myth. There's always a room for opinion and, and sure. personal experience in astrology, and, and sometimes there aren't the, the fine answer, the, the the answer for everything. Um, you see that we see that in the tradition. And people have are there ever opinions. any instances where you two have? Notable practices that are different from each other, or are they all largely the same? Well, in general, they're the same. Although sometimes we are like Siamese, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sometimes we, we might give different emphasis to certain aspects of a chart. For yeah, the, 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 the thing with astrology is that the, the, there are different um, emphases that yeah. we can. I always say it's like going to a museum. If five astrologers talk about the same chart. It's like five people going to a museum, looking at the same painting, and then coming out and someone asks the five of them, like, describe the painting to me. If they are good, and they, if they all look at the same painting, they should describe the same thing. But each of them would use 
different words or they would different emphasize focus. different aspects mm. of the same painting. And it's a bit like that. We might right. probably emphasize a mm -hmm. few things. That's but, a great analogy. Um, it, it is because they are all looking at the same image and they should they should describe the same thing. But some of them would say more about the uh, I, I don't know the, color, the landscape the color, or the color or yeah. the, the the frame or whatever. It's the always the same yeah. thing, and mm -hmm. it should be coherent. Sure. And uh, th th there's no contradiction on in terms. Yeah, it's an It's there is a room for interpretation, and in the interpretation will be slightly different from person to person, but it still needs to give us uh, the same result or uh, within. The expected uh, yeah. results, and I think that's but, the thing. Um, sure. Actually, I would like to tell you something that is um, something that we uh, presented on a, an academic um, conference. Uh, it's about a comet, just for you to see how the uh, astrological system can be yeah. flexible <laughs> and uh, solid because it's so old and so uh, time-tested that it, it's become very flexible at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's about the, the, the 16, uh, yeah. 16, 18 comet. Yeah, we were, we were doing this very small study uh, for a presentation that we have to give on the anniversary of the uh, 16, 18 comets, which were, uh, they had a very strong impact on, on the scientific level because there was this discussion, were the comets a phenomenon of the upper atmosphere? So the fire region of the of the of the four elements or was it a celestial event and according to aristotle it so, would it yeah. couldn't be because the heavens would be perfect so this is a discussion in the early uh, say 17th century and then there's this big comet and there are really these, impressive this set of comets yeah. which help measure uh, the parallax so that they, they can place them properly in the heavens so they, they would place them in the upper sphere so there would be a celestial phenomenon and the right. question we might ask, and this is the interesting, how this the, did this impact it, the astrological interpretation yeah. of comets? Sure. And how does it work? And you think, well, it, they would have to destroy the whole system. No, they didn't. What happens is those that um, those interpret yeah. it as a, 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 a sublunar phenomenon, so a, a physical phenomenon of the upper atmosphere, use the old traditions to ascribe the, the characteristics. No, in, in, this, in this specific case, they would say the planet, the comet looked like so and so, and therefore it's of the nature of Mars and Mercury. Mars and Mercury. Mars and Mercury. There's a rationale. And then we have this man who, who who's writing also an almanac in Portugal, an interpretation of the comet says, no, 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 they're wrong. This is a, a celestial phenomenon which is located in the sphere of Mars. And Mercury. <laughs> And if it's located in the sphere of Mars, it will have a martial quality. quality. Mm -hmm. So what happens is immediately and without any question, you simply shift the, the interpretation. Okay, we need to know the nature of the comet in order to understand its effects. In what sphere is it is positioned in the sphere of Mars? Then it will have Martian qualities. And... And this is this is adaptive, so they don't change. That really, the, 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 there was no change in the interpretation. Simply, the reason why they're attributing a given quality shifted because yeah, there's new right. knowledge for it. So there's a this, minor modification of the system. Yeah, exactly. it should be like something uh, destructive to the system because the comets, after all, they are not sublunary. Sublunary, they come from the outer space. And uh, it isn't. It is not destructive. It's very simple. 
simply the astrologers would fit the comet in the system, but in another part of the system. This is just, it's almost like a, an anecdote, mm -hmm. just for you to see how um, flexible and resilient the system is. Uh, so uh, I think all these discussions that uh, we are having about uh, reception or the orbs or what all sorts of things, they are not um, a threat to the system. Mm -hmm. They are simply something that um, uh, should be um, integrated in a different level. That's mm -hmm. the, the thing. Yeah. It's, for yeah. example, the aspects again, the orbs. You can always say, oh, but, but we do have all signs. We can use all yep. signs and then forget about the orbs. And you see sometimes that in practice in which you have uh, astrologers that are using orbs, but at the same time, but, but with these planets are, are not in orb, but they are in opposing signs. So there's an opposition. And if they're in the chart in opposing houses, there's an opposition there. It might not be a strong one because it's not within the orb and that doesn't have the specific degrees in which you consider an aspect, but there are still two opposing forces within that sign and those houses. So yes, you need right. to account them. And they will do it in practice. To and a certain degree. And, and yeah. it's a matter of degree. And uh, for instance, the in my PhD, I studied a manuscript, late 15th century manuscript, and it had examples, which is really good. So uh, this this man, this astrologer, he would um, he would account aspects by degree, as he said, and by house, and he, he writes that. And the once he, he says this uh, Jupiter is not aspecting whatever, neither by degree nor by house. So you, we can see that he uses both. For instance, what, could you explain and, uh, your PhD and what that was on? It was about uh, a manuscript. Well, uh, it, it's actually interesting because I found out a manuscript. We both found out a manuscript. We knew of a manuscript in Lisbon. And uh, it was like um, an almanac from, 16, uh, from 1468 to 1480, so 13 years. And uh, in the end of the almanac. A sort of an ephemeris. Sort of an ephemeris, of yes. Planetary positions. Just dry planetary positions, but in the end of the manuscript, we had about um, 40, more or less 40 horoscopes of uh, 15th century uh, French uh, people, like kings and things like Dukes, that. Dukes, princesses, yes. so famous people from the... <laughs> the famous, the rich and the famous, famous from the late 15th century, century France. France yeah. Okay. And then uh, I uh, I went to, to, Charles, uh, to Professor Charles Burnett and... Uh, I said, uh, I think I would love to to study this document. Is should could this be uh, enough for a PhD? And he said yes, and he was very supportive. And then I um, I began my PhD in September for uh, 2014, and uh, when we got to the um, Christmas break, December, so two months in, uh, Charles said to me, um, "You should uh, you should talk to David Just." Who was there by the was there in London, uh, because he has something that is very similar to your document, and I had my I, and I had my um, computer with me, and uh, David has his computer, and I said, okay, I'm going to show you my document, and I opened my uh, my uh, computer. David showed me his document, and when we turned the computers, it was absolutely equal. So we had something in the um, 
à la Bibliothèque Nationale de France, so mm. in France, in Paris. And I had a document in Lisbon, and they were both written by the same person. It was not the same document. They were different documents, but they were written by the same person. It was absolutely the same handwriting, the same astrological symbols, and there were cross uh, cross references. We 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 found out that there were cross references between the documents, and the other document, the the one that David had, was signed. There, there was a name there. There was an explicit with a name. Uh, sorry, an explicit is the uh, the end of the document in Latin. This yes, was Latin. was written by. And uh, yeah, th- this was written by me, uh, S. Belle. So it was the same person. So um, I got the second document, and um, this was um, astrological doctrine all over, and several examples of charts that he interpreted. So it's like an introductory text. Uh, it, it was more like he, he collected them mm-hmm. for him, sort of personal from notes. different uh, mm-hmm. uh, authors. He okay. collected this uh, like a student, and this is uh, th- that's why I called my uh, PhD the making of an astrologer, because it's like how he studied, how he collected, what kind of mistakes he had, and then he has another collection of of charts also in the second document. So it's very, very rich. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I have an almanac with horoscopes. On the other, I have astrological doctrine and... Um, interpretations. Interpretations, yes. Exactly. Most of yeah. it in Latin, but one of them in Old French. So it was just a matter of translating, just a matter of translating <laughs> and then uh, commenting this. And because I had examples, it was very rich. I had theory and practice. Mm. So it was very, very yeah. rich. And this is what wow. I was telling earlier, which is with examples, you can know how they're applying the How techniques. they actually did mm. it. Right. Uh, one of the very interesting things I saw, because he draws the maps, as you can imagine, he uses the five-degree rules, the, the five-degree rule mm-hmm. graphically. For instance, in one of the horoscopes, the, um, the ascendant is, let's say... Um, for instance, eight degrees Taurus. Eight degrees Taurus, for instance. Okay. And um, Mercury is like a five degree Taurus. Should be technically should be in the twelfth house, but he draws Mercury in the first. Although he keeps the degree, Correct. and if mm. you don't know what it is, it looks like a mistake. Right. Because it's like in the wrong place. But what he's doing, and he does this consistently, he's doing is pulling the planet into the right house because mm-hmm. of the second, the, the five degree rule, but keeping the right degree in the planet. So it's it's puzzling for someone who doesn't know the rule. Yeah, but I love that. that the that's rule, the advantage of you being astrologers and having that background. Is that something you immediately? probably recognized or realized, whereas somebody, maybe an academic coming that doesn't have that background might not catch it, perhaps. I mean, somebody really good like Stefan Hyland would probably catch that, but some non-astrologer, there's others. No, Stefan is great. For example, (laughs) let me tell you one that's usually wrong, which I was just the other day while reading an almanac and I popped up with a good proof of that, which is people used to say, when... um, Certain person is born under a sign. Yeah. And you would 
one person with the normal culture would say, oh, I was born under the sign, so he was born with the sun in that sign, so in a specific date of the year. While uh, on, on in an older almanac, so until the 17th century, what, what they're saying is the person was born with that rising sign. Right. So if they say when you're born under that sign, it means your rising sign, not your sun sign? Exactly. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And you can see that that what they're talking about, what the problem is when they're looking at this at almanacs, for example, you, you're seeing this... Uh, packed in together with weather interpretation as well for that sign. And weather interpretation depends on the solar sign because you're talking about the season of the year, basically. And It's confusing. It's confusing. But yeah. if you read exactly what they're talking about, you'll see that they're talking about descendants and are not talking about sun And you signs. can give the example mm. of Taurus. Yes, and, and the, the example here in this almanac was obvious because he said, he said something like, if people have... Um, Taurus rising. Taurus rising they will tend to provoke their own illnesses because the sign in the, the, the Venus rules both the sign in the first house and in the sixth house. Which is Libra. So he's using a generically uh, three-degree equal house to, to, to exemplify this. Um, mm. But there you have it, the proof. Uh, this can only work if you're considering a, a, a Taurus rising sign, not the sun sign. It wouldn't make right. sense. And these little ass, these little things that you pop up in there, and they change the perspective in which you're seeing things. Because I've seen people saying, oh, yeah, but um, the sun signs are not as modern as you think because you see them in almanacs. No, you don't. Unless they state it specifically, and there might have been some almanacs where that is stated, but most of them, if you look again, it's not a sun sign that they're talking about. It's a, a, a rising sign. So you would immediately extrapolate. Probably earlier texts are also mentioning that. that. You wouldn't have that problem in a, in, in, a, in a primer of astrology, of course, because then you're, you're having a serious struggle. But in these small texts, probably done by, by more amateur astrologers or for the greater public, you need to understand that exactly what they're saying. Yeah, and sometimes sure. you have people that collect knowledge, but they also um, tend to condensate knowledge and they just collect some parts. Mm -hmm. And it's confusing if you go there without knowing what they are saying and uh, and read because uh, it is confusing. They, they are mixing um, a sign as a rising sign and then a sign for weather, for instance. Mm -hmm. And also, and we talk a lot about this, uh, we think that there's a great part of astrology that was transmitted directly from teacher to student. Orally. Orally. So we don't right. have that. Or don't yeah. have too many tests. You know, the personal experience, the, the little tricks of the trade, the secrets, this was probably transmitted directly. Not yeah, that's written. something that's only being revived now, all of a sudden with traditional astrology, where we're suddenly having a living breathing tradition of traditional astrology again, but it's only, mm -hmm. what, two two generations old, maybe three generations now. Yeah. Yeah. But back then, and we have very little documentation of that, although there's little hints of it, like um, Abu Mashar's student, Shadan, and his little text that I don't think has been translated at this point that is like anecdotes from his teacher, Abu Mashar, where he mm -hmm. talks about his students sitting around and watching a chart reading of Abu Mashar, and then afterwards asking him, like, why did you say that to the client? And then him explaining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's no, because I would love to, to, to read that text of Shadan, 
uh, I saw references to it, but there's no translation, I think. Yeah, there's there's like an article by um, Lynn Thorndike where he paraphrases a bunch of it, mm-hmm. and Ben has done a little rough translation oh, okay. from the Latin, and I'm encouraging him, and he's in the process of gathering up Arabic manuscripts to translate it now. Um, and then he told me recently that there's some academic he met in the process of doing that who may be doing a critical edition of the text. Oh, oh that would be wonderful. Be wonderful. Yes. That's one thing that we need a lot. It's uh, critical editions of, of sources, especially from languages which are not easy to. Because even if we knew Arabic, for example, one thing is Arabic, another thing is medieval Arabic. Uh, right. It's complicated. Latin is not an easy language, uh, unfortunately. We can handle it, but it's still a complicated language to read from. Uh, and that's valuable, a very valuable um resource which is academic translations it's yeah it seems oh, yes. like um language skills learning ancient languages and developing having an academic training in historical studies and some of the things that come along with that are two of the most valuable skills that traditional astrologers can have today yes, yes it is very important to to have at least some kind of historical context for things because, for instance, one of the things that uh, when you discuss, when we discuss uh, techniques or which is better or kind of reception or what is better, we have to think of uh, sources and cultures and periods because some things are natural for a certain period or for a certain author because he lived in a certain place and uh, it is immersed because it was immersed in a certain culture. So we need to have context. We need to have historical context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not one technique, uh, I think, that is immutable throughout all the history. They all change a little. And Mm. they they change, but still they keep the concept there. It's there. there. The essence is there. That's important. So if you discuss the details, Mm. we have to have context to make sense. Otherwise... It seems like they are just making it up. Yeah, I was thinking for something, for example, one, I don't think anyone still catch up to that in terms of practical terms, which is the value of dignities. Uh, we usually attribute five to, to house, um, four exaltation, three to triplicity, two to term, one for face. But um, there is a point where you see the, the Arabs... Uh, um, doing a switch on the terms and the triplicities, where they're giving three to term and give it more importance than triplicity in terms of the whole weighing. And that would change our mutants and scoring of planets uh, significantly, not terribly, but significantly. And um, you see them saying, well, the old ones did this, but the moderns do that. So you, you see the shift occurring sometime around the 8th century, Ninth century, somewhere around there, you see this this shift. Uh, the dignity remains the same. The use yes. remains the same. They have the same role and function in the system, but the 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 way is shifting from one to the other, and this is interesting, and it changes a lot of how you interpret the text. But it's something that is very subtle within the uh, the text, and no one really catches it. Uh, sure, it's, or, it's, or even I mean, Ptolemy was only assigning one point to each dignity. So there's changes. I mean, Pingree said that every time astrology was transmitted to a new language or new culture that it changed in some way. 
And it seems like the study of those changes from transmission to transmission is the the main thing that all of us are focused on so much now just in reconstructing what the history of astrology actually was. Yeah. Yes. And and sometimes the problem is the blanks. Um and for example, with Ptolemy, Ptolemy is problematic, uh, as you know well know, um, because he's half transmitting things, so he doesn't make a, a good picture of astrological practice in his time. So sometimes we think, well, Ptolemy is doing this or he's doing that, and we really don't know what he's doing, because there's we have others to compare, and they're not doing anything of what he's doing. So it's it's a complicated author, and it's such an influential author to the whole history of astrology and the development of astrology throughout the millennia. So two millennia, really. But so it's complicated, and it has to be everything has to be weighed properly. Um, for example, I I have this opinion, which um, techniques you can see certain techniques developing through time and accompanying the history of astrology until its end around the 17th century where everything more or less collapses if we mm. can say this it's well, but there's a tradition that falls there um there are other techniques which simply disappear from the map right uh what happened there um for example i'm thinking of the hellenistic use of the parts the, the lots so there's Things that are lost there. Why are they lost? Are they lost because they're not used so much? So mm -hmm. we don't have the complete picture. So this is a very specific technique that probably the majority doesn't use. Do we lose them because there's a, some, some kind of cultural shift, some, some destruction in the information due to a war or, or an event that makes us lose that information, which was common at a given point? Or does it simply doesn't accompany the technological development of the, of the, of the of the art of the knowledge? So we, we really need to see these things because, for example, some certain things of Hellenistic tradition you can still see hinted in in, in the Arabic authors a lot and throughout the medieval period. They're not as explicit as you would find in in, in an Hellenistic source, but the, the idea is still there, traveling along. It, right. it's it gets more tenuous as you go along but it's not still there too. so and, and it's this history and this understanding that we we have how how do the knowledge travel how do the concepts travel how do they flow do they really fall out of importance or we simply don't have a full picture of, of the practice uh, yeah sect is a all, big one that i have questions about where it's so prominent mm -hmm. in the hellenistic tradition and then it's yeah. maybe moderate or less so in the medieval tradition and then it seems to completely disappear by the renaissance yes yes which is strange because sect has to do with day and night it and doesn't disappear I was, I was thinking yeah i was thinking uh, it doesn't disappear so much and it's always mentioned Mm -hmm. If if I, I'm working, I'm working on this now on on uh, manuals of astrology from from the 17th century, and it's there. The concept is plainly explained there, as Ptolemy explains it in the Tetrabiblos, and you see the concept there, but you don't see so much the practical use. Mm. And here, I don't know if this is because we're looking at the manual, which only has a theory. Are we missing the practical side? Perhaps if we right. see enough practical examples, we might see it pop up more than we would expect. So this is a problem 
one of those questions, the interesting questions, how does it change? Does it really change? Or does it change in, in the mainstream manuals? Or do people still practice it? What's happening here? How, how is this developing through time? And that's, for Xet, is an important uh, point, for example. It's in one of the bases. It's uh, the core, a core concept of, of the doctrine, uh, yeah, which is in, important to, to see. Yeah. So yeah, these I mean, are all things to explore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, it's hugely important for me coming from the Hellenistic perspective, but it's just interesting because there is sometimes um, in the revival of traditional astrology become um, different camps, like as you guys know, with like Renaissance versus medieval versus Hellenistic. And sometimes the disparity between them leads to differences in practice. So sect is one of those things where mm -hmm. Renaissance astrologers today that follow sources like Lily don't tend to either use or emphasize it, whereas Hellenistic astrologers do, mm -hmm. and contemporary medieval astrologers integrate it somewhat moderately. So it's interesting seeing modern contemporary astrologers imitating the sources mm -hmm. that they're drawing on in some ways um, through the ways mm -hmm. that they're being influenced textually. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We, we when and because there it is because we do not have a, a, a complete line of tradition, so we had a break here. So we lost a bit of the of the, of the line. Uh, we are reconstructing, uh, really, a tradition at this point. So it really depends it, on where you're drawing your information. For example, you have William Lilly was for a long time the first uh, source, major source for, for the practice. So you had that pop up in Orrery, Reggio Montanus, and you see that influence popping up. As neutral translations came available, and you see the shift coming up again. Now you're seeing a great deal of Arabic texts coming into translation and being available. So you're going to see new level of information coming in. And at mm -hmm. one point, I think we would have enough sources available in the modern in modern languages and enough people working properly on them to rebuild. I wouldn't say we would rebuild tradition, if that is even possible, but at least to create a better view of what astrological uh, tradition is. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the points why we, we usually say that we are traditional astrologers. We wouldn't say that we are either medieval or Renaissance or Hellenistic, because we do, although I must say that we, we focus very much on medieval practices yeah. and we draw much of our practice in there, we're not ignoring everything else. We, 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 we're looking at the whole picture. So um, yeah. there's adjustments there uh, as we come along. So and actually that's, that's what we want to do. It's not to focus on one aspect of one period. It's to understand how, how the tradition yeah. lives and uh, develops and uh, grows and all those sorts of things. And understanding this as almost like a living uh, creature, yeah. this knowledge, this corpus of knowledge that is astrology, and th that has accompanying us from the beginning, almost like a living creature yeah. that goes throughout all these different periods and uh, gains different colors from different periods, gains new yes. new shades, new yeah. new shapes. Exactly. Also, exactly. Understand why does it gain new shapes again? Yeah. Why, why does was it, it change? Was it lost? Uh, was it did it became useless? Was there a shift in mentality? What's happening there? And we we need to see that although we did lose things and things get lost <laughs> in the <laughs> process of of history, 
probably there are some other aspects of astrology which were dropped by a question of let's uh, the lack of a better word a technological evolution within within astrology itself and certain things which were simplified were transformed into complex uh, more complex calculations or or different approaches due to to more astronomical points of view i don't know um, i'm just I'm not i don't they, give they an, uh, I can't give you a specific example of this but you, they would value different things yeah mm. so things change um, so also there's not uh because sometimes people ask but which one is the the true uh, true tradition which one is the real astrology which one is the best is it Hellenistic? Is it medieval? Is it Renaissance? Or, and well, it's like all any other kind of knowledge or science, if you want to use the word any other kind of knowledge. It just grows. It's alive. You know, it's it debates itself. Uh, it questions itself. Yeah, yes, there's always an inner debate on things, and that's so healthy. There's no not one true good astrology. There's a system, and if you understand the system, you can have a critical view on ideas, on astrological ideas, and you can understand this is okay. This is coherent with the system. This is part of the system, and this is not. And most of the things, I wouldn't say everything, but most of the things in contemporary astrology are not really uh, coherent with the system. So that's fine. If people want to practice this, that is fine. That's not our, not mm-hmm. our thing. <laughs> but um, what we would like to understand is how this knowledge that expands for centuries uh, lives and breathes and develops not to to find out which one is the best, which period is the best, but to understand all of these, mm-hmm. all of these periods. Mm-hmm. And, and really to, sure. to understand, and that's a point of view that we've been finding out, is they all orbit one central uh, corpus, which maintains more or less stable yeah. throughout. It's very strong. It's history. Yeah. And then sure. there, are, there are major divergences there, here and there, and topics that can pop up into discussion, go go again, disappear. But the idea, the core is always there. In exactly. The same. We always say it has a very strong core mm-hmm. and a very flexible uh, ex- external boundary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a bit like very... Hardcore, if you want, right. and then very flexible in mm-hmm. the boundaries, and this external layer uh, changes. Yeah, according to time, cultures, uh, cultures, uh, regions, etc. So um, you you see yeah. the, the, those shifts and these discussions. And it's almost like a face, and you can put different makeups, yeah. different kinds of but makeup. It's always the same. Thing. But it's always it's the same person, face. Yeah. Sure. Beneath. Yeah. I like that. That is so another good analogy. You seem to have a way with uh, analogies that I, I really like. <laughs> well, I like analogies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I meant to ask, Sometimes are you going to publish your PhD dissertation now that it's finished? Uh, eventually, yes. Yes. Uh, what I had, and again, I'm a lucky person, because as soon as my PhD finished, um, there was this scholar, you probably know him, Jean-Patrice Baudet, mm-hmm. in France. He writes about medieval astrology also. And he, he sent me an email and said, send me the send me the, uh, the PhD, I want to read it. And I was like, oh my, <laughs> what he's going to say? And he, um, he sent it back to me with a few questions, not about astrology itself, but about 
few questions about manuscript and sources. Historical context. Historical yeah. context, just a few things. And then David Just, which I know personally, said, um, send the, the PhD to me, please. And I was like, again, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I sent it to him. He, he, was in, um, he lives in um, Sydney, Australia. And he, he shares his time between Sydney and Germany, basically, uh, because of his academic projects. And he said, I'm going to print it, and I'm going to go to the seaside with my red pencil, and I will correct it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was terrified. And then uh, it, it took him several weeks. And I was like, every day that's... Uh, and I thought like, right. oh, this is probably horrible because it is go, it's going on and on and on and correcting everything with his red pencil. But then he sent to me all, also a few, a few corrections, not about astrology again, but about uh, historical details. And I, I emailed him and said, oh, my God, thank you, David, because I was terrified. I thought you were correcting everything. Everything was wrong. And he said, no, 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 it's okay. Uh, so all this to, to tell you that I had to wait for this. And then I uh, incorporated these corrections. And Do few, some more translation to complete a the, few, the text yeah. edition. Yes, and a few other things. And then I sent it again to Charles Burnett. So uh, now it's back so, to so me again, and it will be. Equal. It's being revised so it can fit a book format, you know, because there's a big difference between a PhD yeah. format and a book format. So sure. we hope that it will be published at some point. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's on. It's it's on preparation. I, I just say. wanted you to understand that this was kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a process. process. <laughs> right, and that's after doing it for many years and then defending it and everything else. You're still going through a long process afterwards. Yes, and, yes, yes. And Louise, you're in the process of finishing your PhD dissertation now? Yes, I'm writing. I have My PhD has, at this point, four parts, I would say. Uh, I hope. I'm not sure. It's still an ongoing process. At some point, I might decide otherwise. But And two of them are finished, uh, which are the core part of the analysis. And I hope now to do the introduction and a sec uh, fourth segment. And it's coming along fine. Uh, the problem when you're, you're working on, on this kind of study is that you're, you're, you're swimming in a sea of information, which it's not, not, always, not only your sources and, and the information that you're drawing from your sources, but sometimes it's too much. And the, the 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 sources of studies that have been made uh, around the topic, and sometimes it's difficult. It's a difficult process to keep up, and not to miss a key document or a key uh, paper that might elucidate or might clarify or might discuss some certain aspect that you're trying to understand. So I'm I'm still in, in this process, but I hope within a year to have everything finished. And then I hope to publish it as well. And what, what's the focus or what's the title? Or you don't have a title, but well, what's the focus? Um, the title, I never recall the title correctly, but it's something like Transgressing Boundaries. Um, it is, has to do, uh, it has, I hadn't discussed this yet, but it's, it's not uh, a secret. It's, I'm studying um, the, the teaching of astrology here in Portugal within the Jesuit context, because at the, um, at the, the passage of the 16th and the 17th century, we have a teaching of astrology in Portugal by Jesuit uh, priests, by the college which was 
has this, had this special class on mathematics, which uh, included basic mathematics, astronomy, navigation, all the, the major topics of mathematics at that period, when included astrology. And so far, astrology had been thought out within this context, especially because we're talking about Jesuits and the religious context, and with all the prohibitions coming from the church uh, uh, two decades earlier, we think, well, this might be an oddity of some sort. And what I've been able to prove so far is that it's not an oddity. Astrology is there as part of the major program of mathematics in that uh, school. And this is not a university, this is a pre-universitary knowledge. So we're talking about uh, sort of a secondary, an equivalent to today's secondary... Uh, like in high school? High school, kind of a high school level teaching, more or less. It's not exactly the same because the ages are a bit different, but the, the idea is that. So so I'm studying how they teach it, how they transmit it, and how this this, this pop up in a religious context, because we're talking about the Jesuits, which are supposed to be orthodox and reject completely these kinds of things. And that's that's one of the interesting aspects of history, is that you find that things are never so black and white, and there's a lot of discussion surrounding this. So you have these people, which are church-obeying uh, priests, Clerics trained in theology, trained in, in also in mathematics uh, and natural philosophy, and they're teaching astrology, but they're teaching it in a religious context and proceeding with the religious strictures that are in place. And this is the debate I'm doing: is how they teach astrology, then what are the limits? How are they doing? And this is the ongoing process of research, and it's quite interesting. And it. It does allow have been allowing me to understand how do a lot of these shifts that we were discussing early in Renaissance astrology from the medieval to the Renaissance come about with all these discussions because it's just just the church pro prohibiting things regarding free will. It's a whole internal discussion on astrology that is coming from the past, coming from the period Elena studied, and she she's already detected that in her PhD, and then. You see it going around, and you you're seeing it in the teaching form, which is rare. Whereas I said, it's very rare that we have an astrology program and we have the syllabus. And here we we're lucky enough that the manuscripts containing the complete course have survived. Wow! So I'm I'm doing that, and probably if I'm mad enough uh, in the future, I might translate at least one of them to English because all of this is in Portuguese. But, uh, well, the, the, the PhD is in English, so it will have a lot of it translated. Uh, but I might consider translating one of these manuals because I think it would be an excellent source for people studying this period to see what are they teaching in terms of it's basic kind of astrology. It's It's very late period. It's very so, um, It might not be so interesting oh, if you're is. looking it is interesting always but might not be interesting if you're looking at technical practices or comparing it with with uh, the, the richness of medieval uh, or Hellenistic uh, astrology but it's still interesting to see how astrology shifts in terms of teaching uh, at this period with all the the conversions of religious prohibitions and um, and also 
astrologers changing astrology, which is something and, you can you can really <clears throat> see. Um, and in the middle of these prohibitions, it still survives. It still survives. It's still there being practice, <laughs> and you can see the discussion going on. Um, you think out oh, the the church and the pope emitted the bull, and astrology was forbidden. No, it wasn't. There was a discussion. You can't do this. How then we're going to practice medicine? And you see uh, the, the, the discussion and the impact of these things and it, it responding back. And it's very interesting. It's a very interesting process. And I hope to transmit at least a part of it with this research work. So you're doing a dual thing then in that you're studying how astrology was taught traditionally in the past, but then also you guys are gearing up to, uh, it seems like, launch a new phase of teaching astrology to astrologers in contemporary times, right? Well, mm -hmm. we hope so. Mm -hmm. Even uh, we would love to have people who are contemporary astrologers and intend to go on being contemporary astrologers, but we'd, we'd love to have them, well, it happens already mm -hmm. in Lisbon, uh, to have them uh, teaching the tradition like uh, suspending their thoughts for some time and teaching and learning the tradition and then going back to whatever they like to do, contemporary or other kind, and uh, but with the knowledge of the tradition, with this solid with the ground, uh, with grounded the basis, basis right? yes. Good, a good ground base so people can yeah. then build their ideas and their thoughts. Because I think most of contemporary astrology at this point has more to do with your belief system than really on the technique you're using. Yeah. There's a general technique, which we could define, which is not traditional, but it's the modern technique. And then you have, you have your belief system, your philosophy of life coming into and, and interpreting that for the client or whatever use yeah. you give to astrology. But that's that's okay. That's that's a way of approaching it. And then there's always been the personal belief or the or the the, the personal philosophy coming into to practice in astrology or on all periods, but uh, but we need to assure that astrology is there. Yeah, and the problem is that most of the time astrology gets lost in our own belief system and goes out the window when people don't know yeah. what they're doing uh, anymore. And I think that's the best contribution that can be given right now is to have this this is astrology this is the core basis this is a, a knowledge this is um i don't want to call it a science because our concept of science nowadays is different because it's not a science in the, in the strict word of today's uh, correspondence but it is a body of knowledge with a certain method with a certain core concepts that need to be preserved and i think this is the most important part then you might explore it differently you might put it to different uses but you need to have this ground uh, core uh, very well defined enough so that it it regains this kind of, of solidity that we see throughout yeah. history. And I think that's the major work to be done today for today's practitioners and today's people. And then yeah. people can do whatever they want, yeah. knowing that this is astrology and this is something astrologically inspired, not necessarily astrology. This is one of the things, but it would be very good for everybody at least to have a basic knowledge of the tradition. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, the other consequence, and we talk about this a lot, is also that um, people who know only contemporary astrology, I think they 
sometimes they feel, or some of them at least, they feel there's something missing. And so there is this kind of consumerism. Every time there's a new idea, a new technique, a new book, they they want to get it. They want because there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if they don't admit it, and sometimes, well, most people understand. We've all been there. In the, ways. We've all been there. Yes, exactly. This mm-hmm. there's something that is. How do we put this together? And then there's new book or a new technique or a new a, asteroid or a new, new something, asteroid. new new yeah. calculation that. Might have that. A, a, a new asteroid. It's the, the <laughs> more, yeah. Even if it's small, like a peanut, but it will be the one that solves the problem. So right. if you know, if you know the tradition, you don't have this kind of hunger for novelty. Right. And the, you just the hunger, focus hunger, on or this. like a thirst. That's a great keyword for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you can look at things. We also love the asteroids. We love everything that's new and it's out there. Uh, it is it's okay. We just don't need to put everything in the chart. Hmm. We we look at this astronomically, and it's fascinating. And we don't need to force everything to be astrological. It's different. And um, but but it is it is fine. So when people learn the tradition, they are not as much. They are more more bulimic yeah. with new things. <laughs> if you want, yeah, they're more in 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 tune with understanding and being able to apply it and being able to perfect the practice rather than to gain new knowledge. Uh, knowledge sure. can be gained to practice. How how can I apply this correctly? At what extent can I stretch a certain definition or a certain? Yeah. Sure, oh, there's not as much of a feeling that there's something missing or that there's a, a hunger to find the missing piece that will make your system work, yeah. but instead yeah. you already have a relatively strong foundation and it's just a matter of applying that consistently mm-hmm. and learning exactly. more and more as you go and continue to apply it in practice through your empirical yeah. studies. Yeah. Gaining expertise in a certain way—that's yes. the, the key point. It's being right. becoming an expert on a different on on a specific. Uh, because there's one one thing in our culture, in our I mean, contemporary culture is the new thing is the good thing. Right. What is new is good. So if someone in, invents something new, like a new aspect or whatever, or discovers a new planet or mm-hmm. something. The new thing is the good thing. Yeah. It's the good that is going to solve all the yes, problems. And sometimes the, the new thing is not even astrological. And <laughs> yeah. I think people sometimes don't think about this. And there is this all this input of information coming in, and that happened. I'm, we, we're a bit. I must say, we we have been a bit off uh, the 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 contemporary the, the today's discussion of astrology because we've been off uh, conferences and lecturing and all of that for quite some time, but. Um, well, what I remember is that people were adding these things, and sometimes they're adding things to astrology which are not astrological. Yeah, and we need to be very careful with that. Is that astrology, or is that something else that we're adding in because we're missing something, or because we liked something? Uh, and that's uh, something that needs to be thought, and because. There are things which are not astrological at all. They're not astrology. They're something else, or something, or astrologically based, but they're not astrology. And we need to be a bit more strict with that. I don't mean to be fundamentalist, but um, 
we don't. need to keep the if we want a solid core of practice and a solid definition of, of a body of knowledge, we need to get some some, to some boundaries what of what it yeah, is what and it what is. it is not, and that's uh, an important work to to do in the next. Uh, Sure. Next. In the next generations. Yeah. Because if people want to do something non-astrological, that's fine. That is fine. Just don't call it astrology because it's not. And also, uh, apart from the this search for the new thing, it's also the the problem, the temptation, I would say, of syncretism. Mm. Everything has to do with everything. We know that. We all know that forever. But um, it doesn't mean that you put everything in the horoscope. And just because uh, I always say this as a joke, we there are seven planets, visible planets, and counting with the sun and the moon, and um, seven planets, seven chakras, seven musical notes, seven dwarfs, uh, Snow so White. Right. And so we don't put a, a dwarf in every chakra because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> we don't need to put... Everything into astrology. Not everything is an equivalent, yeah. and we have to be careful about that. Uh, Although everything has to do with everything, yeah. we don't have to deal with everything every time, you know. <laughs> if, if there's think. one one quote that survives the centuries from now, I hope it's that quote that you don't have to put a dwarf in in every chakra. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> Which might be. Very cryptic. If said over the sun, all right. references to the tale disappear out of. Uh, <laughs> There's going to be a whole t- a debate now, about that. I will be known. I will be known for this. Right. <laughs> There'll be a whole like academic now. conferences with people writing papers to interpret what you meant by that. Exactly. Argu- <laughs> arguing about mean? the correct interpretation. Well, I think but uh, I you think guys you have know been. What I mean. Yeah, you know. Uh, but you guys have been gone for a while, and I think now that you're coming back, and if you start. Because I know you've both been intensely focused on your academic work for much of the past decade and focused on your PhDs, but the community has changed rapidly and traditional astrology has taken off way faster than I think anybody expected over the past decade. But part of the reason for that was, and you guys affected that, was due to your book. And your book may have had a greater impact over the past decade than you realize in helping to spur the traditional revival and act as one of the first books that. allowed people to make that their entryway into astrology rather than having to go through modern or contemporary astrology first. So there was something I said recently, a quote that I came up with on Twitter, which is just, it seems like one of the main the main things that people are feeling is with the traditional revival lately is that that which is old is new again, and that which is new suddenly seems old and outdated. And that's almost like the almost mindset that a lot of people have adopted over the past decade as part of this traditional revival. So it's exciting that you now are launching the next phase of that, which is this yeah. new book, and you're also launching a course soon to go with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes will. and it will be it will be um, managed by Maria Mateus. Yeah, she'll be oh, participating. Great. She will be part yeah. of this. Um, well, only problem right now is time. Academic work, unfortunately, is very time consuming. So as soon as we have the system all set up, uh, we'll be launching, I hope, by November. I'll have that ready, um, but um, we'll have to work it out. But we'll, we'll announce it soon enough. Um, so okay, brilliant. And the, your two books will be required reading for the course, and people can find yes. both of those on Amazon.com, and uh, that's the primary way to order the books, right? Yeah, right yes. now it is, yes. yes. 
Yes. We tried we, other methods, but this is the more practical. It reaches yeah. people more. Yeah. Easier um, will you be republishing the first book at some point? Because the one thing I love about the new book is you self-published it, and just the layout and the design is really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's it is, like a yeah. hugely not improvement to insult the first book, but just your design skills. Because I know you, uh, Lewis, you're a professional designer. You do graphic design. I did. I did. I did a lot of professional design. The, the diagrams in the book are, are my uh, authorship. This cover, I must say, is from our editor because we have um, our editor that does this design and he, he reconstructed the way the book looks. I'm not sure if I have it's any, there. Yeah, it's, it's there. Here. The Portuguese book. It's a, more or less within the same design level, so it works. So it's blue, and okay. the other one and the is one's white. white. So it goes yeah. with the same design. It has the same structure, and he reconstructed it wonderfully from the early edition in Portuguese. The the the, the English edition is now managed by the AFA, so uh, I, we it's don't up know. to them yeah. to 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 change design or structure of of the book. And I'm not sure if they're going to do that or not. Uh, there are some updates to the book that should have been done at some point because knowledge evolves and we have adjusted a couple of things. The Portuguese edition already has it, but that is a matter of publishing rights and you know how those things work and can be complicated. Sure. But I don't know. Who knows? We would love to have the, the two books with this with this look. The one in yeah. blue and another one right, in white. Exactly. Right now we're going to do uh, the next books that will come out probably from us will be more academically oriented, of course, on the history of astrology and, and would be the, the, the output of our, of our research, current research. We have other books also planned on, on um, more uh, history of astrology. So there are at least possibly three books on the way in the next uh, three years. Elena's PhD, another book that we're preparing, and my PhD eventually probably will publish that. At least I'll try to do that. That has to be finished first. And who knows if we're going to do some kind of continuation to the, to the Ono Heavenly Spheres. It's possible. Part of Volume 2 is written for, has been written for some yeah. years now, sure. which is the book that teaches how to 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 delineate each house and and go into the interpretation of the of the chart. But uh, it's it has a lot of work yet still to be done, and the predictive techniques, which is also a major part of astrology, which still needs to be properly taught um, and and go in when when and that's yeah. be to be revised. I think we we're too spread out now. We have a couple of works already starting to come up with a, a concise uh, approach to, to prediction, but uh, that's a work that we would and like also, to do in the future. But who knows? It's, it's yeah. so ideas and projects. But the book, the, the second part of this book would be, I don't know, it would take some time because we don't want on just to to show the techniques like, oh, this is these are the techniques and that's it. We want to really uh, take the, the student by the hand and, and say, what we do is this. And uh, sure. in case of doubt, in this case, we do this and we do that. And um, There's there exceptions. Is... There's an exception A, exactly. exception B, exception C. Why do they occur? How do you handle them? And uh, uh, That's, we, It takes time to write these. We don't like to give right. only one example because if, we, if you give one example, it's exactly the one that is not useful for the student. Sure. So we want to give at least two or three examples for each thing. And we 
we write the book as the book that we wanted to have had when we were studying. So it really takes time. (laughs) Yeah, so so that you have an idea. I think one of the chapters that is uh, already written, which is on um, resources, money, resources, um, substance, all that that kind of work is, if I'm not mistaken, around 12 examples, example charts, each one for highlighting a given aspect of, of the delineation. So we're this complicated when <laughs> explaining and writing books. So sure. uh, it takes time. <laughs> There's a lot, lot going on. Um, but right now you just have sort of like an under construction page, but you'll be relaunching your website soon. And what is the um, URL or what is the address where people can sign up or can find out more information about you? So is um, Academia de Astrologia. I know it's a Portuguese, uh, but you probably can, can place a link uh, um, in we that will have the Portuguese and the English version. We don't have no longer the access to the English link that we had a couple of years ago. But we'll have um, probably with the new website when it's ready, it will immediately shift into Portuguese and English according to the region uh, and the language that you're using in the browser. So we hope that will make things easier for people to access it. Brilliant. Well, I'll put a link to the website on the description page for this episode or below the YouTube video in the description if people are watching this on YouTube. But yeah, uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. Is there anything we should have covered or mentioned that we didn't get a chance to? I'm trying to think. We covered a, a lot here. I think so. I think well, so. I think yeah. we had yeah. the basics. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think. We can't speak for hours, but you don't <laughs> right, want right. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a limit. <laughs> There's a limit for your patience. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks a lot for, for joining me today. And, Thank and you congratulations on the, the launch of this new book. And thanks Thank for you. writing the first one and, and the impact that you've had on the tradition so far. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, thank you for your feedback. It's yeah, really important it's, for us. We had no idea. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Um, and hopefully people can leave some comments uh, in the comments section for this episode just to express um, if they had read your book or where they found it in their studies and what sort of impact it's had on them. Because uh, I think there's a fair amount of people that, that it has had an impact on. So maybe we'll get a sense for that with the release of this mm-hmm. episode. Well, All right. Well, you. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me today, and thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to our patrons who helped to support the production of this episode through our page on patreon.com. In particular, I'd like to give a shout out to our patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, and the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org.